0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to be talking about topography. We've got Kelsey Gray here. Um, here's how this happened. I, I go to an architectural and design bookstore a couple times a month, and I usually buy a book, <laughs> you know, and I bought this "Let's Make Letters" um, from from Kelsey Gray uh, about um, you know lettering and uh, fonts and and the process of it and what they mean and everything else. And it was just such a great book that I just reached out to her. <laughs> I said, "You got to come on the show." So uh, so that's how that's what she's, she's the author of this book. Um, Let's make uh, letters, and it's a really really good book for getting started with topography. And topography is very 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 important to what we do. Unfortunately, most people don't think it's very important and that's why we have so many bad signs and bad everything (laughs) when it comes to text uh, because people don't understand that topography is one of the more important things uh, that you need to understand doing what we do. And so we're gonna be starting this. This is the beginning of a conversation. We're gonna bring more people on to try to uh, solve this problem because we have a lot of sick people who um, use bad fonts you know, so, so, so anyway, so we're going to we're going to try to start to fix this. This is this is uh, intervention uh, is to have someone uh, have a couple experts come in and talk to us about typefaces and and topography. So Kelsey Gray is going to be on for the second hour, and uh, I'm just really excited to have her on. So um, so stay tuned uh, for that and get your questions about lettering and fonts and topography ready. It's going to be a great second hour. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, jump into the questions. Mitch, what do we have?
1: Thank you, Alex. First in, Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh, PA, asking, What are methods and best practices to serve files over the Internet from a Synology network-attached storage? The goal is to move 40 to 60 gigabyte files to colleagues working remotely.
0: I think that the only question I would have there, or one of the questions I would have there, is how fast do they need to move it, and what's your connection like at your at your um, where you're putting it together? I think that that can be, if if it's little bit and little bits and pieces as needed, and you have a really fat connection, it could work well. Otherwise, it could get pretty challenging. Go ahead, Philippe.
2: I, I want to not throw this on to myself, but that's exactly... We were waiting for you. I was I'm like, I, when
0: I started reading it, <laughs> when, when he was reading it, I was like, where is Felipe? Uh, we, we need we need him to jump in.
2: That's exactly the type of thing that I'm solving. Because there are many people that are using Synology drives in their offices. And a lot of times they need to, uh, to serve files to people remotely, but they don't have the bandwidth. I, I came in and I put a lot of Synology servers in data centers to become that extra arm on the internet for people to have that. So they connect the Synology to my service and my service serves to everyone else. So one way of doing that, obviously Synology themselves, they offer C2 storage, which is eh, more or less, but um, if you're able to open up the ports to the internet and you're willing to do that, uh, you could serve through Synology Drive or Cloud Station, uh, but there are other ways of doing that, obviously, with services like the one I provide. So if anyone has any questions, can reach out to me anytime, anywhere. Go ahead, Chris. You know,
3: the other thing I was going to say um, is that it's possible, maybe not, it's possible that the a, a better approach would be to ship somebody the data, the 60 gigs on day one. And then hook up using Felipe style work to get little updates because, as we all know, the best uh, you know data delivery system is FedEx, you know. And so, at least it's the fastest when it gets to a, a lot of data. <clears throat> but but get the ship them the beginning of it, and then all the little the little updates. And you know there'll be some big files, but that stuff will come
0: uh, online. And, and and in today's world, 40 to 60 gigs isn't too much data. Um, you know, we, we've moved uh, terabytes, you know, around uh, at this point. Um, Lucid Link is something we've used a lot of in the past um, for some some of the backbone uh, processes. Also, at only 40 to 60 gigs, this is the kind of thing I, I often use uh, Frame.io for. Just to, If you're just trying to give somebody something, I want to upload it, I don't want to build a whole server. Now, if you're, and, and the question really is, are you actively working on it? So do you want to give them access to it um, uh, in, in, as a synology that you're, you're constantly adding things and people are d- downloading things. For transferring and just getting it to people, um, I use Frame.io almost every day. <laughs> you know, it's because I can just send them a link. Uh, they can give me feedback. They can um, you know do it. And it, co- it costs some money. So it's not, uh, but I've got probably, I don't know, five or six terabytes up there on Active. And then I have a bunch of stuff in Archive. And I, what I will tell you is, is that uh, when I get a client who asks for something that's eight months ago, and I still have it on, on uh, Frame.io, and I send them back a link in 10, in ten minutes, it uh, feels pretty good. <laughs> so so, so it, it, it look, you look good. Go ahead, Chris.
3: You know, Alex, you're about the only person that I will allow get a, to get away with saying only 40 to 60 gigabytes, especially <laughs> online. And, and I will tell you this, the online file delivery system that we wrote for our company, we have virtually... Nearly every production we've done for clients since two thousand and seven immediately available online.
0: Yeah, it's great. You just keep on adding drives. It's like, is is there like a warehouse somewhere that just has the drives? You just keep adding them. No, I, and the and it's not it's it not the full res res
3: files. It's not the full res res, but all the deliverable you know compressions. Right. And it's and it's astonishing that people that we can send people links and stuff from that long
0: ago i only promise 30 days but and what we often effort effort to try to keep it for a lot longer than that and it does make you look really good especially when another another partner can't find it they're like oh we can't find it so they come to us we're like oh yeah here, here, here's the link all right ne- ne- next question
1: from jeffrey reyes in the bronx new york are we excited about the 15 inch macbook pro air
0: uh yeah go ahead bill I don't think a lot of people are, but
4: I think they should be. It is a fabulous machine if it comes out like the the smaller one that they had before. You know, we're in a kind of an unusual class here at the show because most of us are content creators or do really heavy duty work. Most of the rest of the world out there doesn't have as much need as we do. Um, but I got one of the, small ones, the small MacBook Air M2s for my voice booth, and I have been just utterly impressed with it. The screen is fabulous. It's super portable, super lightweight. And in terms of power and ability, boy, it just blows away anything I've ever had for a general purpose driving computer that'll take care of the needs of probably 80, 90% of the market out there. The one thing that I will not survive with that as my primary driver is that it has just two USB-C slash Thunderbolt ports. And so you're always in the dock world if you want to do anything more robust in terms of connectivity. And particularly in things like what I do here every day, I have all four ports and a dock. In fact, I think two docks set up. There's just all sorts of I.O. that I need because of the work that I do that this doesn't handle. But if I didn't have that, I would go with more of these in a heartbeat. They're great machines.
0: Go ahead, Courtney.
5: Looks like a pretty good machine. One reason a lot of people bought the Air was because it was fanless, so it could be used in a situation like Bill's in, where he's in a recording studio, and you have it in front of you, you so you don't have a fan suddenly kicking on in the middle of something if you're doing something that requires a little more oomph. Uh, and I'm trying to look look at the uh, specs, and they don't say whether the 15-inch has a fan. Previously, if you went up to a MacBook uh, uh, Pro with a 15-inch. Uh, or the 15 inch display, the M2s,
0: you'd have a fan, so you could sit down. Oh uh, 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 yeah, I don't. Okay, I don't, I'm uh, John, you got. A, John, you got an open mic. <laughs> so, um, uh, the um, yeah. So, um, I don't think it has a fan. I think that's part yeah. of the being be okay. the air. Yeah. So uh, it does have the the higher speed M2. So you, it, will you think it will throttle down if it gets a little too excited? Eventually. Eventually. I mean, I think that the, for a pro the real killer is the, the fact that you only have two, two you know, Thunderbolt connections because one of those is gonna be uh, power. And so you really, you know, it's- You only got one left. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty brutal. So, so I, you know, I, I think that, um, I don't think that I use, when I'm on the road with uh, an older Intel 14-inch uh, MacBook Pro, I have all the, you know, when I'm on air for this show, all four, I know that I ha- I'm not fully set up. If I look down, and one of those slots is open, <laughs> so, yeah. so I got four four slots. That there's there's four things going into four. There's there, my Ethernet, my uh, power, my camera, and my my audio interface. It so says so HDMI all, out too, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah, but I don't the need it out. Ways. I need in. <laughs> so, yeah, so, well, so, I so it doesn't. But I mean, doesn't you do any plug good. it
5: into your hotel TV.
0: <laughs> yeah, so so I no, but I, I it, so so anyway, so I, I don't think that. Uh, um, you know, I think for many people who are just doing things more like uh, you know numbers or Excel or you know doing a lot of those things, doing basic stuff, I think it's I think it's probably great. If you're if you're going to do real work on it, you're going to need a pro. You're, you need those, and it's it, it just comes down to those USB-Cs you know, or Thunderbolt uh, connections. I think that's the, that's a, the thing that is just the it's just a you know, it, and it really, I mean, I think Apple's done a pretty good job of separating the two out and segmenting them. So you're paying more for the pro. Um, And it has pro features. I would love to see the pro actually get, I would love Apple to make the pro another, you know, quarter inch or at least eighth inch thicker and just give me a, just a beefy battery, you know, like just, you know, and, you know, I think that would be, that'd be great. Go ahead, Alan.
6: Yeah, actually, I looked at the 15. I was kind of interested. I actually do most of my production on a 16 inch fully loaded MacBook Mm -hmm. Pro. And there's all this, there's this 14, 16 inch debate going on with so many people. I think the 15 is going to hit the right spot for a lot of people. For me, actually, when I went and looked at the specs, I did notice the RAM max out at I think 24 and that was a deal breaker. So I don't know if anybody mentioned the RAM.
0: Yeah. And also long renders. So long renders, it'll throttle. So if you're, if you're putting something in, you know, it'll, it'll, cause it will run out of, if if you keep it hot all the time. Um, you, you, you're you going to end up getting to a point where it has to slow down the, the CPU to to not overheat. So that's the other, you know, big, big challenge there. Um, uh, next question.
1: From TJ Escher in Minneapolis, Minnesota, TJ wants to know the new M-Chip Mac Pro maxed out is about $38,000 less than a maxed out Intel-based Mac Pro at 12000 compared to 50000 Seems like a deal. It's also $4,000 more than a maxed Mac Studio. Are the extra Thunderbolt ports and PCIe slots worth $4,000? Go ahead,
2: Philippe. Well, uh, I have a couple of thoughts on, on that. Uh, it's worth for those that actually need the PCI Express, right? I.O. for uh, deck links or a bunch of other things that you can add there. For example, store, sorry, storage. Sorry. Um, but between the Mac Studio and the Mac Pro, for sure you're gonna uh, experience less noise. The Mac Studio, once it's being loaded, uh, it's gonna make noise. It's not a very silent machine. Whereas the Mac Pro will be an extremely silent machine. The second thing here is compared to the Intel Mac Pro, uh, the 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 cost, right? Uh, the Intel Mac Pro can take up to 1.5 terabytes of RAM, whereas the uh, M chip. Mac Pro can only do 196 gigabytes. So there's still a lot of things to keep in mind when we're comparing those prices and so on. It feels to me that the the Intel Mac Pro is still a machine that has a a different application, maybe uh, on on the side of servers, than uh, than the new Mac Pro and Mac Studio. And the other thing is the new Mac Pro probably will spend a lot less electricity than the current Mac Pro. Uh, So I would like to have one. (laughs) <laughs> Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it depends
1: on you know kind of work you do. Uh, if you're into 3D graphics and a lot of rendering, you really need that Pro. Um, the other thing is the Pro has the, a new generation PCIe uh, bus in it, uh, which will work well with SSD uh, drives. Uh, it'll be much much faster. It's got some astounding speed to it, and I guess with eight Thunderbolt ports, that means what it has four different Thunderbolt lanes in there. Um, it's a lot faster. In that regard. But I think uh, it's each you know,
0: one's got its own lane. Is that right?
1: Separate yeah, lanes? So there's eight, eight lanes? lanes? Mm-hmm.
2: That's correct. Yep.
1: That's it's, astonishingly fast. So yeah. um, if you have all that kind of connectivity needs uh, and you're running a uh, post facility, uh, the pro is going to win, but uh, the studio is going to win on price.
0: Go ahead, Nick. Mm, can't hear you.
7: Yeah. So all of those um, ports and the PCIe, uh, I PCI- Uh, slots. It's all about connectivity. I mean, you could have a different box uh, with exactly the same chip Uh, in terms of 3D rendering, even, uh, you know, the the M2 and and its GPU cores and all of that. uh, You know, 3D work would essentially be the same if, uh, you know, you're not cooking it all the time. But obviously, the larger box gives you a lot more cooling ability. So you can have longer sustained performance and connectivity. I mean, I can remember... Us using you know X rays and uh, Mac Pros to to ingest you know multiple SDI connections worth of HD video back in the you know early mid 2000s and so uh, that's the capabilities that you get with this I mean feature film cameras are shooting at 8K 12K routinely at this point and generally you know they're recording to something that's mounted directly to the camera but with something like this you could ingest multiple uh, camera feeds and have that viewed live, processed live uh, for live viewing, live comping, but also I know, over those uh, USB-C connections, also be dumping all of that to multiple drives so that you've got redundancy. And so there's those types of scenarios where connectivity and high data rate is critical. That that's where this is going to land in its sweet spot.
0: Good, Courtney.
5: Effer ingest it'd be cool. I was just wondering if you could put some NVIDIA cards into those slots. Uh, if uh, Apple's no. going to release any drivers. I, I, we're for all them. shaking our
0: head. No. <laughs>
5: they have to write the drivers. That's <laughs> the problem.
7: That's not gonna happen. Yeah. yeah.
5: <laughs> so. We all know that, that that
0: ship sailed so long ago that we can't even see it anymore.
5: So I'm wondering what the difference is between that and, and a sonnet box for external uh, you know, access over a Thunderbolt port. What's the difference between Speed. the studio the studio Speed. Ultra? speed
0: speed speed. because you're you're throttled by the thunderbolt port yeah the 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 pc the new pci lane will be faster Uh, Uh, and just convenience you have a box that has all the things in it you don't have this collection of i have lots of the sonic boxes and i would love to put those cards into the computer rather than having this mess of external sonic boxes and you have then then you have those eight lanes of thunderbolt in addition to the six cards that are inside it, you know, definitely changes the structure pretty quickly. Yeah, fully.
5: And I oh, and I great. noticed it does come in a rack mount case, too. Man. Optional.
2: You know, those computers, so, they are ideal for DIT cards. Because uh, yeah. I, I've seen a lot of productions that they are skipping the camera storage altogether. And they're connecting everything to the DIT cards. And they are doing the live grade on the DIT cards and so on. And this is being able to, what, ingest 24 streams of 4K yeah. 60p? Uh, that th- that's quite uh, amazing, and then you just use that turnable to send to external media, and uh, and you're recording. It's amazing.
0: I I think that EVS has to start looking over its shoulder. I mean, somebody's going to figure this out. Like the the hardware is now fully capable of outdoing what EVS does. It's just that no one's got the software figured out. But but the the drive speeds, the the processing speeds, everything else um, could do something pretty. Miraculous and, on that box for a fraction speeds, of the cost.
7: You know, and I networking mean, speeds. Yeah. I mean, I have when we're doing virtual production here, we have uh, you know, a five gigabit network in the studio to um, you know, it's faster than some of the SSDs connected yeah. to us, uh, you know. And so um, you know, I don't know what the standard Ethernet connector is gonna be. Maybe it's gonna be a five gigabit ten, connector. It's ten, 10 gig, is it yeah. Okay, so it's already there. But eventually they'll there's gonna be something faster than that, and you'll be able to just drop it in as a PCI card. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell.
1: And because the uh, the GPU is on chip, um, you now have two extra slots in the PCI uh, slot count uh, to add more cards because you're not going to be adding those uh, Radeon um, AMD specialty cards.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing I was thinking about uh, this morning, it was thinking about the show, is when I saw this question. Actually, uh, was that you could theoretically with enough bandwidth if you were given a, if we if we were allowed to have the bandwidth from zoom you could take theoretically in a pretty straightforward way a solid 48 48 1080p outputs from zoom you know you could just basically saturate the reflector um, that may seem crazy except delivering something like back to unreal engine or or something like that so you take all the people that are in a meeting and then able to project them on cards at full resolution is kind of interesting, you know, for you know for virtual events and so on and so forth. So uh, th- that we're going to see a lot of, I think, pretty interesting things as we as we go forward with these with these boxes. I also think that for rendering, I think they're going to be pretty interesting, you know, as, as render render nodes. The, the the RAM can be a little low for some things. Um, I have some projects that I've worked on that will max out at one ninety two, <laughs> you know, at, at one hundred ninety two meg uh, gigs of RAM. Um, but those are mostly photogrammetry pro- um, programs, not not so much rendering, but photogrammetry. Um, systems. Now, next question.
1: I have a question, and it probably relates to one we just answered. Um, how would the high-end Mac Studio compare to the entry-level Mac Pro?
0: Go ahead, Courtney. I, well, I think they're pretty
5: close. If the Ultra, which is the two-chip version, the two of their M, M2 chips married together, uh, two Max chips married together, I think. Uh, so the highest End of the studio would be basically what the Mac Pro is, except for the expansion ports on it. Uh, it comes with the same memory limitations, I think. Uh, well, as the two chip version of the other one, but um,
0: I think it's pretty much the same in a nice case with a little better airflow. Yeah, I think that you, you might get a little bit more performance out of the studio that's maxed out than the than the entry level uh, Mac uh, Pro, but you'd have all that connectivity, you know. And, and I think that, that would you know it just depends on what you need, you know, for that for that to work and. Space. I have a I have a Mac Studio right here next to me and it's just sitting on my desktop. I couldn't put the Mac Pro on my desktop. I uh, go ahead, John.
8: What percentage of the market, Alex, do we think needs that extra IO? Is it five percent?
0: at one. 1%, maybe 0.1%. Like it's, the, you know, yeah, it's it's a, it's a tiny, here's the thing though, is that it's, it, I think it's partially just protecting the ecosystem. It's saying that if you're a high-end, because the, before the Mac Pro, the last Mac Pro came out, even though I didn't buy one, um, I had, because it, it still didn't solve some of the problems that I had, I had been planning to exit on the high-end, the Mac ecosystem, because I was like, it's not gonna be powerful enough, you know, so, I'm gonna have to move to PC or Linux. You know, I've got, I have, I had um, at one point, I had like six machines that had four NVIDIA cards in them, like really, you know, five thousand dollar NVIDIA cards in each one um, to do real time processing. And I was like, I can't, I'm never gonna be able to do that on the Mac. And I could see a future where I wasn't using a Mac for that. That's not, that doesn't really affect Apple's bottom line, but it does affect, you know, their their the you know if professionals start leaving it, it it takes out some of the. The magic you know and and so i think that that they needed to, to they need to hang on to the professionals especially when you think about what they're developing for the headsets one of the problems is they they need that whole ecosystem to exist so they need the ecosystem of i can produce all that content that what they don't want is all the content for the headset being generated on pcs that's not good marketing you know and so having some having a piece of hardware that's really designed for that and they're going to keep on adding to those things i think it's going to make a big difference yeah, go ahead nick
7: Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about here has been uh, rectangular video, but something that they did show was watching live events in the Vision Pro. And so now we're talking about stereoscopic capture processing and streaming. And so this platform is going to be the 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 basis for that this is going to be the big oil derrick and it's at the at the events at something like the olympics and uh, i think they're gearing up for being able to live stream stereoscopic immersive events
0: which isn't that hard. I mean, i used to do it. <laughs> I've done I d i have done, would, done would, a lot of it. It's it's the camera exactly. and reme- we have to remember that Apple bought uh, next BR, so they have all the tech in there to do that. Um exactly. I would be blown away if the next WWC isn't doesn't have a version. They'll have a 2D version, but they'll have a three D they'll have a stereo version. Of course it's recorded, so it doesn't matter. But you know, with um you know, with the live VR, there's plenty of, of uh power inside of that, the new Mac Pro. To put a couple video cards in there, really just one video card, because you're taking, you know, you have to, but what it can, you know, the question there is that if you had, let's say, an eight, eight camera, you know, it depends on how you do it, but a couple fisheyes, you know, that are rolling into it, into one black magic card, you have two of those, and then you have it stitching in real time and then putting them into both eyes and then streaming it all out. And that is a very doable thing inside of this this Mac Pro. So I do, I do agree with you that we'll see more live um you know coverage with that and it'll just be a uh, you know kind of a CCU for those for those camera systems and Apple may even partner with someone or I mean again they bought a company that built the camera systems you know or the process so um we'll see we'll see how that turns out next question that was- yeah. Oh, go ahead. what were we gonna say, what were gonna say uh, i was just uh, gonna say
7: the last time i was really interested in mac pro was because it was the only machine capable of doing that for certain cameras yeah so yeah
0: no absolutely a quick reminder by the way that uh, we have a ton of questions uh, you can add a couple questions here but what i would highly recommend is going and looking at the questions and uh, voting on those questions to make sure you get the order that you'd like um i think we have probably enough to get us through the rest of the, <laughs> the rest of the hour the first hour uh, uh questions are also stacking up for uh, Kelsey Gray uh, for topography. So if you have questions about typefaces and topography, go ahead and throw those in right now and uh, make sure, again, to vote on these questions to make sure we get them in the right order. All right, next question.
1: Chris Fenwick, Emeryville, California, asks, I'm sure we all agree, but the most interesting bit of hardware shown yesterday at WWDC was that amazingly engineered and styled iPhone stand in front of the TV. Any clue what that was?
5: Go ahead, Courtney. It turns your twelve hundred dollar phone into a, a ninety eight dollar clock radio, basically. I mean, it's not anything different than what this Otter Otter charging stand is for thirty two ninety nine. I don't know what the price yeah. of the Apple one was, but uh, uh,
0: more, uh, Bill, more than thirty two ninety <laughs> yes. nine. I think keepers. we all decided it's forty nine ninety nine.
4: I went even cheaper than that. This is mine, and it is this guy, and it's all of $11.99. I will say, I use this more than I can possibly imagine. I put my phone next to my computer and often do comms or something like that for the show on it. What, what's really cool. th- what is that? What are you- This is, here, I'm, let me pop it back up. This is the uh, Liston cell phone stand. It's 1199 $1, $1. It works well. You can determine how high. You know, it's not super adjustable. It doesn't but it charge, it though. It doesn't no, have a MagSafe no, no, no. charger. This on. is That's just cool. a a simple, mm-hmm. put my phone next to me. I plug it in using the lightning connector on the bottom while I'm doing the show, and yep. it's another screen for looking stuff up. Looking
0: stuff up. No, that's great. Go ahead, uh, John.
8: We think that the this iPhone stand has a motor in it. So it's able, it's able to track you. Yeah.
0: For, <laughs> go ahead, Chris.
8: So
3: I I obviously this is a, a, a miniature jab at the goggles, but uh the thing about the phone that they used in front of the TV, the stand that they used in front of the TV is it was vertical. So, like for example, Bill, I don't think you could set yours up with the phone perfectly vertical it'll fall over backwards it's great if you it's great if you want it to like show up at your face at your desk but i but that phone was perfectly vertical shooting out into the room with the good camera shooting out into the room
4: oh i see what you're
3: saying okay yeah so I,
0: mean, I just think it's funny that Apple, to, Apple, can yeah. Apple can put out put out a thing where we're all looking at something they're not even talking about and going, how can I overpay for that too? <laughs>
2: <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, sleep <laughs> Well, one thing that I tested today because I installed the beta on the Apple TV as well. If you have one of those Belkin um, MagSafe thing that you put on your MacBook for 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 the for the iPhone, mm-hmm. uh, that will work on your TV as well, depending on how thick your TV is. I have an LG C10 and it worked really well on top of it. And I did a FaceTime call to my mom today. And I think FaceTime on the Apple TV, on a 65-inch TV or Zoom or so on, can be interesting. Yeah. good Bill.
4: For what you are looking for, you might want to consider this. I have one of these actually mounted on the door of my voice booth inside. And this does go flat so I've screwed it into the wood of the door, and when I have uh, my IPS panel, when I want to put the second monitor in there, I can slip it in this, and it will stay entirely vertical. So there are ways. Again, it's not a charging stand, but if yeah. you're just looking to mount the phone there, uh, yeah, these think, kind of things can
0: work. I think. I think the, the. I think we're just talking about. There's some serious design that got, got put into that little little holder. We don't know if it's real or not, but I bet you there were a lot of meetings. That's all I'm saying. I bet you there was. There's a lot of meetings involved with that stand. Uh, next question.
1: Next one in from Jeffrey Reyes in Bronx, New York. Gaming seems to be a big key for the Vision Pro as Apple pushed gaming in the keynote. Since Unreal is the preferred engine for AAA games and film and TV, should Apple actively work with Unreal in addition to Unity for the best game experience platform? Go
7: ahead, Nick. Um, Probably not. Um, So I think there's, there's... Number one, I don't think it was a big key for the Vision Pro. I think it's important. It's a component of their, what they intend for the Vision Pro, but it's not the big key for it. Um, on, honestly, Apple and and Epic are two big companies, both awesome companies, neither of which actually needs the other. So I, I don't see a motivation yet for them to... Um, to suddenly resolve their other differences and and, and come together, I don't think that um, there'll be a blocking of Unreal Engine. So, I mean, the native development platform for the Vision Pro is Xcode, and you know they're partnering, they're marketing Unity uh, on side because Unity is really really friendly with Apple and, and and didn't you know try to sue them for something. So. Uh, there's a lot of value in marketing Unity and the game uh, world with the Vision Pro because there are a lot of people who are willing to spend a lot of money on uh, their technology to play games. And there are a lot of people that, you know, they, Apple knows exactly how many users are on their iPhones and iPads and other devices playing games. So they know exactly how important games are to their overall ecosystem and their services and their sales. So it clearly is important enough to, to have included in the presentation. And Unity brings to the table a number of users. And many AAA developers use Unity instead of Unreal Engine. So. Um, the big deal is they're already developing on that platform where they may not be familiar with Xcode yet. So this gives them an easy on-ramp to delivering content onto the, the vision pro. Um, But you know, really the, the native development, Platform is Xcode and, um, and and Apple's tools for for working with three D and such. So, um, so the answer to the question is, um, I don't know that they should, um, and and even more doubtful that they will anytime soon.
5: Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and we don't know if the hardware on that thing is up to rendering two eyes full of four K uh, stereo vision in with a decent frame rate on your eighty three frames a second. At 83?
7: Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, maybe... It's
0: 83 frames a second. Uh,
7: the, the thing, you know, we were, you know, a note about that is that... It was, even it was though, a
0: side note that someone said that it's a, they said the headset's pulling at 12 milliseconds. That's 83 frames a second. Yeah, they, that, there, was, that, uh, was that was the,
7: the, the spec on the R2, R1 chip is they're able to refresh those screens at 12 milliseconds. Um, the thing to understand about those two more than 4K screens is that they don't have the same kind of rendering demand as... 2 4k televisions or our desktop displays because they're foveated and that was another function of the r1 chip and what foveation means is that our eyes really only have sharp resolution exactly where the center of where they're looking at and so eye tracking is used to focus the rendering effort at the portion of the screen that you're looking at and the area beyond that in your peripheral vision is going to be updated at perhaps lower resolutions, lower frame rates, a little bit blurred, and your entire optical nervous system is never gonna notice. It's just gonna know lights coming from there naturally. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is great. This is really immersive. Um, But you're not updating, you know, to more than 4K displays every single pixel the way you would with a desktop screen.
0: And that has been a huge, from a bandwidth perspective, that's been a huge challenge for us uh, dealing with 360 for a long time of, what do we render, what do you see, are we loading things in, so on and so forth. And the foveated renderer is gonna be a big deal, um, you know, as as we move forward because of the ability to um, kind of focus the energy on that. Um, I don't think that, I, I think that the problem is, is that the uh, Unreal really, they really blew it. <laughs> <laughs> Epic really blew this. The problem is, is there's this whole platform that's about to launch and apple it's not that apple is going to shut them out they're just not going to return their calls you know and so the thing is is that so you they, they can expect almost no support from apple to do that no special things no features added no you know like nothing's going to be there they're not going to do anything to help them do that and they're building up unity we almost forgot that unity existed before the the lawsuit like that's the that's the level of mistake that they made here is it's not that they are it's not just that they're not gonna be on the Apple platform, which may or may not matter. It's that Unity is gonna get marketing from Apple over and over and over again, marketing that was going to Unreal. Like they had Unreal on every keynote until the lawsuit, you know, and it was just, you know, it's just the level and, and what, so they, you know, they they thought that to try to get to a future that they're not gonna to get to, Unreal's not gonna get what it wants. I mean, Epic's not gonna get what it wants out of Apple. They gave up a future in the thing that was in their core competency, that they were in a heavy lead from a tactical perspective that is about as dumb as you could possibly go, you know, down this path. And they knew where Apple was going when they did the lawsuit because they were part of those, all that development. You know, it was just insane. It was an insane move. Um, and it just is an insane, uh, you know, uh, you know show of hubris you know like that that they thought that they could they could win something that was unwinnable like what they were asking for is unwinnable in the united states and maybe they can get it done in in europe because they're crazy um but but the but, but they're not going to get it done in the united states the other thing i was going to point out was that for
5: triple a games to target this platform as a delivery you know Ah, uh, because of the unique interface uh, of the gesture interface and the eyeball interface,
0: yep. they're going to have to completely rewrite the controls of the game for this very tiny, minuscule I, platform. I, pro- I promise that Apple could own this market if they wanted to. Like, once they finish this up, they could turn this on. And how you do that is you build a you build a you build a dynamic resolution arena game. And you, set up, and you set up big prizes to win, and it'll, it'll flush their entire market forward. So the thing is, is that, so the problem with games right now is that they're not built for people, they're built for gamers. Um, and what I mean by that is that gamers really want all the little stories and everything else. Uh, you could really simplify this much. What we, what we don't have right now is a AAA game that's more like football. Like just a, there's a big field, and we're all gonna either throw the ball or kick the ball or whatever, whatever football you wanna do, that doesn't exist um, as an FPS. And if you built an FPS that worked on everything from the phone all the way through to the, to the headset um, at different resolutions, and then you use those big Mac Pros to do, to do high, higher end rendering for broadcast, You'd end up with something, and then you said, "Oh, it's ten million dollars to win the game. <laughs> win the game, everyone's playing you know, and so the thing is is they could light this up like a rocket anytime they wanted to um and they just it's just a matter of when they that you know I don't think that the the infrastructure's there yet, but they they could turn it on and and be as big as almost anything else out there pretty quickly um next question,
1: Mark Steele in Orlando, Florida asks. As Division Pro will be used in iris scanning for user authentication, I wonder if it will be limited to a single user the same way iPhones and iPads are. This would make it a non-starter for families.
4: All right, go ahead, Bill. I don't think so for these reasons. In the show, they showed a couple of things that surprised me, one of which I guess for the people who were testing it out at Apple Park They actually had an ophthalmologist on site, and they were specifically measuring people's vision. They were creating lenses or probably picking them in that environment out of a case so that you could... Customize it for more than one person. So, my guess is that that's the way it's going to go. If you have a family and you have different eyesight profiles, there will be these magnetically attached lenses that already exist in the system so that you can recustomize it for individual users. It does mean, though, that in the state that it's sitting on the table, it will be set up optimized for the primary user, and you'll have to go through a few hoops. They said it was taking 15 to 20 minutes for each user who tried it out to go through that process of customization to make the experience as perfect as possible.
0: Uh, Next
4: question.
1: Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington asks, is there a technical advantage of connecting 2K monitors to a PC using HDMI versus DisplayPort? Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, no, because DisplayPort has more bandwidth, so you could probably get higher resolution and more screens if you wanted to go that way. The downside is Dis- DisplayPort is very old. Uh, HDMI, on the other hand, is coming on.
5: Right, go ahead, Courtney. Well, HDMI 2 will all handle 4K and even 8K, so I don't think that'll be a problem with HDMI. And if you you say you've just got 2K monitors hooked up, it should be fine. Uh uh, the only thing you're going to, the only thing you have to deal with is HDCP, whether or not it's going to support that if you're playing back copyrighted material uh, and you're using that HDMI port for anything other than going to a monitor.
0: Next question.
1: Al Trivet in Carmichael, California. Based on what we know about the Apple's keynote presentation, does Vision Pro look like a solid version one? Go ahead, Nick.
7: So absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I do equate this very much with uh, when the iPad was released. Uh, I mean they they've done what no other um, you know VR technology company has done recently. and and keep in mind VR itself has been around since like 1969, 1968. Uh, but they have a complete ecosystem down to the silicon, the operating system has been built for this. The developer tools have been built for this. Uh, they didn't compromise in terms of the uh, the way they built this. For you know, Apple's vision is about connecting people. Whether you're connecting to people to one another, connecting them to what their interests are in life, connecting them to their health, to uh, to their work, and you know, they built a device with that in mind rather than, well, we, we really like stereo virtual reality. That's pretty cool. And what can we do with this Android chip, this Android operating system, this snack dragon chip? Like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, it separates people from the outside world, but you know, it's still cool. Whereas, you know, Apple really looked at how does someone live their day-to-day lives with this and, and they worked from the Silicon on out all the way to that second display facing out into the world the the user doesn't use it's it's that display is literally for everyone else that's not wearing it and so uh, I think that they've really put together something that's a paradigm shift uh, if you go by what Apple's patent lawyers have to say there's some 5,000 plus new things in this product alone so uh yeah i'd I'd say this is a pretty solid version one you go john
8: i think it's a great first start version one i think version three is going to be fantastic
5: (laughs) Go ahead, courtney yeah as far as version one version two i just don't understand the the product it's a solitary product it's designed for use by one person because it isolates you from everybody else Mm -hmm. i mean think what can you do on this product that you can't do with with something on an iPad, let's say a 12 inch iPad, which costs a lot less. With a 12 inch iPad, you can you can sit amongst your friends and go, oh, look at this TikTok, isn't this hilarious? Yeah, with the goggles on, you're gonna say, look at the, oh, well, you can't see it. Uh, you know, you can't share them with anybody else if you wear glasses because they won't be able to focus their eyes on it either. Uh, it's a solitary experience designed for one person and isolates you from everybody except for
0: the people out on the internet. Uh, So the people around you. I think the whole point is is that you can't, that that they built is that you can talk to people at least at momentarily. I think a lot of us would like to, I mean, (laughs) I will tell you in a, in a, In an open office uh, there's a lot a lot of people that would love to be able to shut everybody out you basically can create your own office you put your headphones in and now you're in your own office and you don't have to talk to anybody um and that is a huge plus for an open office it's probably the only fix i've seen so far is to be able to cut everybody out because it's so annoying to have them you know it it is like it's it's just it's just soul-sucking to be in an open office and so the so so i think you're going to actually see people using it in that format um, but I think also from work for home, um, you know, I think that you're going to have uh, a lot of folks because you can see what people are doing outside of the of the headset. The, the, I don't think that I think the problem with the headsets in the past have not been that because there's a lot of people that are quite happy to cut people out. Um, you know, the um, the the real problem is has been resolution, frame rate, uh, de- you know, development tools, platforms, and so on and so forth that have really held these um, these headsets back. But cutting the rest of the world out has, I don't think has actually been, I know that people marketed against that, but there's a lot of people that would prefer to have a little time on their own. Um, and I think, that, <laughs> I think that that's not gonna be, when you're looking at a market at, at $3,500, they'll make it, they'll sell as many as they can make. Like, you know, like a, you know, because it's not gonna be a massive market. It's gonna be a couple million. It's not gonna be an 80 million unit system. It's gonna be a one, one to 2 million a year system, um, which is still 3 to five, $7 billion. You know of of revenue, so it's still a good business to be in. Um, But I think that that uh, I think that what made it solid is they as they took the cap off of the price. Um, I you know generally the number of conversations that you had that that we had working on a lot of other things in the past was how do you fit this into a three hundred dollar unit or five hundred dollar unit or even fifteen hundred dollar unit. There were so many compromises that were made to do that. And Apple was just like, why don't we not worry about that right now? You know, like, you know, and they, you know, and, and let's just, you know, we'll figure out how to get there eventually, but let's go ahead and start building the market now. Um, but I, I think that, I mean, like, I, I used to use the oh, Oculus that- on, the, on the plane, and the only reason I stopped taking it was because I kept on breaking it because it was fit into my backpack and everything else. Mm-hmm. But it was great. You get on a plane, you throw the thing on, and then you don't have to pay attention to anybody for the rest of the flight, just by itself it's worth it <laughs> you
7: know <laughs> so, so like, a, a yeah, lot of it. the questions about you know how effective this is as a product really do echo the the kinds of criticisms the ipad was getting when it was first released it was yeah. it was underpowered it it's not needed why why would i use this instead of a laptop pcs have had tablets before and they failed you know but for the same reasons like mean, they they were tablets built on a windows operating system that was not designed for a tablet, you know, and where where iOS really stepped up things is they took something that everyone was intuitively familiar with, right? Turning the page of a magazine and turned that into a incredibly powerful and intuitive interface, you know, mechanism for human machine interaction. And, you know, they were, Apple is uncompromising in that way with this device you know one of my biggest pet peeves with consumer vr up to this point is the requirement of these handheld controllers like you get the headset on you can't see and you got to fumble around and get the right hand and the left hand in the right spot and there's a joystick and and they're all like that and apple was uncompromising and saying you know, we're making an interface where you can just wiggle your fingers. And it doesn't matter and, where you put your fingers. You don't, like, Microsoft has done that, too, with their HoloLens. But your hands have to be in the field of view of the couple of cameras that are in the device. And so, um, you know, again, I really think that Apple has thought through how this device fits and, into people's lives. And the thing but, is, I'm
0: sitting I'm sitting in my office by myself most of the day. And the thing, and, and I could, I have six monitors around me, I've got stuff at all in front of me. There's some point in the future where I could literally have an open desk and just put these things on and just go to work. You know, like, and I can be, and it's, it's much more, you know, this is, this will be much more like a, a minority report where I'm going, okay, I need to go over here. I'm going to move over to this. I'm going to take this back over here. I'm going to, you know, place that stuff. and And for people, especially, again, work from home, uh, you know, you can have a much bigger system than you would have, you know, I can have a big screen. Oh, I'd like to watch for lunch. I'm gonna watch a little bit of Avatar or whatever I wanna watch. The The thing that I, I was kind of blown away by when they said, oh, you can take movies too. I'm curious about what, what they what, looks like a very square looking movie, but the idea that you could shoot 3D movies from the, from the thing also is super interesting to me um, because I, I, you know, it's being able to just have that on the headset and go, oh, I'm just gonna record that for a minute. Um, I know it'll sound weird, but I think there's gonna a lot of people that are gonna be at birthday parties, like just putting it on just when the cake comes out. So they have that little memory of that and it's not making it up or trying to figure it out. And, and you can see why they bought NextVR in, just in that one little bit of technology, but it's gonna be a stereo, it's a stereo pair that's recording and it's something we talked about wanting it on the phone for a long time. Instead, it's gonna be on the headset. So, um, and you can expect this also to be the, eventually the CG, the. You know the 3D cameraman. <laughs> There'll be someone who gets paid. There's going to be a position. I promise you. Of people who just get paid to watch. Like you can just sit there and go like this and just like just just watch. You know like like just on there and get the 3D scene. Uh, it'll be the cheapest way to do it because the last time I did that it was sixty thousand dollars a camera. But I, I think we should. You know I mean, every time Apple releases something that's that is a new platform, people say that it's dumb and it's not going to work, and that hasn't happened very often. You know I like get you know and so I think that it's going to be you know. So it's, um, they've they've, uh, they've made pretty good money on almost everything that they, they launched. Um, next question. And for the Newton and the Cube and the- and Yeah, the, I mean, since Steve Jobs came back, everything <laughs> that, you know, Apple releases stuff and they go, wow, that's not gonna work. Cube was after Steve The Joe. phone, the, the people ho- said that the phone, Apple doesn't understand phones, they're not gonna, there's no way that this was gonna work and Nokia's gone in two or three years, they were basically irrelevant. Uh, the the watch is the same thing where the people Apple doesn't understand watches. There's no way that they can figure this out. And now I don't see anybody with anything other than an Apple Watch. Generally, it's not nobody, but it's like one percent. Yeah, but you're like, like it's like you know of, of watches you never see them. Mine only cost twenty five dollars too, and it does yeah, everything that Apple. Watch Amazing, does. <laughs> and um and so you know so I think that uh you know Apple's been pretty good at and it comes down to, um you know execution. You know they they do that really well. Um, next
1: question. And it's Talalik Lopez from – Lopez Waterman from Wilmington, Delaware asking, I wonder how many Zoom ISO outputs a Mac Pro with some deck links could handle?
0: Uh, go ahead, Mitchell, real quick.
1: I guess we can do the math. Uh, six uh, PCI, four – or six uh, deck link it's- uh, quad cards. That's 48, I
0: believe. It could do 48, um, there, uh, the, the, the limitation would be the bandwidth. So it really can't, you can't right now do more than 16. So two of those cards is all you'd need to put in there because it's all you could do at the moment. I'm sure that it would barely reach 15% capacity on the on the thing to do that. It could do 96 or uh, it could do theoretically 96 if you used up those, the, the um, Thunderbolts uh, that are up at the top. Uh, so you could, add, you could add a lot more to it if you wanted to. In fact, yeah, yeah, you could do a lot there. Anyway, next
1: question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado, wants to know what are the capabilities of Adobe PDF in 3D. This would make 3D content available to a broader public. Go ahead, Nick.
7: Yeah, the 3D capabilities of the PDF format are really limited. Um, you can display a 3D object and, and you know kind of spin it around. I think if you were to visit like a Sketchfab website or something like that, you can do the same kind of thing on a webpage. Uh, web page. Web. 3D interfaces are far more advanced than PDF's uh, 3D interface. So um, I I don't know that it makes a whole lot of sense to uh, expand that. I mean, if they were to support USD uh, complete with animation and interaction, uh, there's a web format called GLTF or GLB that allows for quite a bit of interaction. A lot of car, automotive car configurators that you can go to the website of the car and customize the car and all that sort of thing are built on GLB, GLTF, um, which themselves can be built out of USDZ. Uh, So the, the amount of interaction you have there is really limited. And if I was introducing someone to 3D content, that wouldn't be um, the place to do it.
0: You know, I think that the challenge really is with PDFs is that they have a lot of technical debt. Um, you know, so they, they've been around for a long time and the development process for the PDFs is so painful for a lot of people and, and the distribution of those PDFs. They're great for basic things, but there's been so much kind of glopped onto them and so much, again, technical debt from being there for 30 years that, um, you know, I don't, like, I, the 3D stuff's been out for a long time and no one uses it. You know, because it's just like, oh, what am I going ha- you know, to have to deal with with that PDF to do it? I barely like using the forms. You know, I just want to send something to somebody as a PDF and, and have it flat. And that has to do with the complexity that that's built into it because it's been around for so long. And so I think that um, that's the challenge that they have right now. Next question.
1: Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, with a question. Does Alex still feel like folks won't want to wear a headset for very long? Is there any comfortable ergonomic uh, that would work for a VR headset? And will you be able to see through to the real world? Oh, yes, Nick.
7: So in particular with the Vision Pro, it's a what we're calling a mixed reality headset. So while you're wearing it, you have the ability to see to the outside world through the camera system so it's essentially feeding you the outside world even though you're in a closed headset and it's really clear that apple spent again a lot of time designing the ergonomics of this so that it will feel comfortable um, it seems like they have uh you know cooling in mind uh even though they've got a lot of chips and a lot of displays going they, they've thought of that uh the you know I, i'm I really like what I'm seeing in terms of the, the ergonomics the, the the materials they're using and, and the, you know, the comfort elements of their design for this. So this to me appears like something you can wear for a long time. I've, I've worn um, existing headsets from, from Meta and Vive and such for hours and hours and hours. And and there are quite a few people who have, so I I think it's going to, it's something that will develop.
0: I bet you, you'll you be able to wear it for as long as, as one whole MLS uh, soccer game in 3D. <laughs> that's my guess. So, um, so I, I bet you uh, that's already, they're already working on that. So, um, so anyway, I, I, I think I was wrong. I, I really didn't envision what Apple was doing. Because you can see through it, because it, it is integrating all the apps that you would normally use, I think you're going to end up with a lot of uh, um, long-term usage that people have. <laughs> Whether that's good for your eyes or not, I don't know. Uh, next question.
1: Next question from uh, Gina Below from Appleton, Wisconsin. What safeguards might Apple have in place to protect Vision Pro users from accidentally tripping over their cat or dog while wearing the headset? Yeah, go ahead, John.
8: Uh, it's got two cameras on the very, very bottom of the headset, so you it can see down, and it's got cat and dog detection and sandbag detection.
5: <laughs> go ahead, Courtney, real quick. Exactly what John said. Uh, go ahead, Nick.
7: It's got a lot more than just two cameras there, too. I well, mean, that's it's got infrared, it's got RGB, um, so it's doing quite a lot. And so, um, yeah, you'll you'll be able to see what's going on around you if you choose to. And and
0: again, the the thing is, is that it's constantly turning on and off, where you can see if someone walks into the room, they fade into what you're looking at. If you're if you're close to something, it's going to fade up and show it to you. Uh, it is looking, those cameras are being fed back to you so that you're actually, you're not, you know, in a in a uh, vacuum. Uh, next question.
1: From Jeffrey Reyes from Bronx, New York. And question is, do you foresee Apple's Vision Pro being the product that jumpstarts 3D design and 3D graphics, similar to the effect Chat GPT had on AI? I was disappointed seeing Apple spotlighting floating 2D screens in a 3D world rather than native 3D objects. Okay, go ahead, Nick.
7: Well, I mean, we're still accustomed to viewing media in, in flat formats. I mean, we have three D printers for for quite a long time, but you know, we we came from an era of newspapers and magazines, and and so uh, you know, we've had three D displays. Uh, we're comfortable with two D content, so uh, I think the the approach of using. Uh, the the I'm gonna call it two and a half D style presentation within the space is uh is sound and it's logical. Um but you know I the, the challenge still today it it hasn't really been fully cracked is that you know creating effective 3D content is still not easy you can use photogrammetry um and and get things very quickly and easily into 3d uh, but there it's still not perfect you know there'll be as ai systems develop and can start to recognize the world better, you know, when I can do a, uh, a a LiDAR scan with my iPhone of a video tripod and all its mechanical complexities, and it looks like the proper video tripod with all of its mechanical complexities in a Vision Pro, yeah, mm-hmm. then we're there. Yeah, go ahead, John.
8: So if you watch the State of the Union, they actually cover this really well, and they show mixed media. They show 2D and mm-hmm. 3D in the same scene. It's,
2: it's really well done. I su- suggest you go watch that video.
0: Go ahead, Philippe.
2: Second in John here, State of the Union, they show dealing with 3D objects and so on and so forth.
0: And, and speaking of 3D objects, I was going to ask uh, Alan about, you know, the, you've done a lot of product shots like what we saw. So what we saw there was not, you know, a video of, a, of the headset, but a very, very high quality, um, you know, uh, rendering of that, of that headset. What are the real challenges, Alan, with um, producing something at that level for, you know, broadcasts? You're talking about the final image quality Yeah, that just Apple the final produces. image quality, uh, like there's little things like like the stretchy fabric. I looked at that and I was like, that's really hard to render. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> well,
6: Apple so, Apple solution is to throw a whole lot of money and a whole lot of time at it. You know, they, they one of the things Apple does really well, their philosophy is to do just a few products and then hyper obsess over every detail of that product right. rather than a lot of products and just get it most of the way there. They take right. that same approach to marketing and advertising. they right. obsess they absolutely obsess over every detail, um, and they spend the time and the money to make sure it looks just right. so
0: And is it like from a technical perspective, is it you know you know do you get into situations with oversampling, anti-aliasing, you know geometry like what, what do you think that that's what are the big roadblocks there?
6: Well, there's really no blocks again when you put enough time and energy and money to something. <laughs> when you're <laughs> willing to spend
0: six hours a frame on
6: rendering it out, it's it's fine. Yeah, and and um, one of the things I, I will I will say this that um, one of the biggest challenges I think uh, with Apple is that the products are so insanely simple. Yet right. you have to figure out a way to make them look beautiful and unique and different and uh it it really just comes down to subtle subtlety It's subtlety of lighting It's subtlety of concept they'll concept things over and over and over they get to just the right thing and then they fine-tune it and we spend rounds and rounds and rounds of detail you know just just obsessing over every detail and every nuance Mm -hmm. to the nth degree (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so
0: that's great uh next question
1: Pellalik Lopez Waterman, Wilmington, Delaware, is where he is right now. Sorry for a simple iPhone question. How do I make sixteen to nine default on my iPhone camera? I'm not liking having to set it every time I take a photo.
0: So I would recommend not doing that. Uh, your your camera is naturally capturing a uh, a larger image. When you set it to sixteen by nine, it's just cropping to that. It's cropping part of the image out. Um, so. I would always shoot at its native format and then crop it in, in uh, photos so that you still have the data there. Uh, but, but when you do 16 by 9, it's not, you're not getting more in the 16 by 9. You're just getting, you're just cutting a piece out of the, out of the um, native uh, sensor. So I don't know how to do it by default because I've never done it because I don't do any crops on those things. I'd rather crop it in post.
1: Uh, next question. Al Trivet in Carmichael, California. Thoughts on the idea of spatial Computing keynotes. Uh, go ahead, Nick.
7: Yeah, I, I'm actually really excited by that. Um, I think that one of the little un, underappreciated uh, features that there was shown at the uh, talks yesterday was the uh, the kind of the reactions that you can do with the video subsystem in uh, the Mac operating systems or the Apple's operating systems. So they sh- they showed a demo of people reacting uh, to something in a Zoom meeting, and instead of the balloons and such just being like a little icon or something that goes over the video, it- it's in front of and behind you um, and following the depth of field and-, and all of that. And what I'm thinking is that the technology that they're applying using that is an early stage of being able to fully composite you into a virtual environment mm-hmm. uh, when you're presenting so that you could be in your living room, but look like you're on a keynote stage uh, with a very large screen. They they kind of hinted towards that. And I, I was there was a, a a woman presenting a keynote presentation and and she had coworkers floating the, the only thing that was awkward for me is like, they're, they're floating in her bedroom. It's kind of weird. Uh, but in my living room, I wouldn't mind, you know, having the ability to have this presence as if I'm standing on a stage presenting with this massive, uh, you know, screen behind me and I can see my audience out in front of me virtually. Uh, so I think that there's, a, you know, it, it brings back that sense of of being on a stage and and getting to see your audience, um, it's different than sitting in a Zoom meeting and, and you know your screen uh, keynote takes over and, and your your grid view of your uh, you know participants is off to the side. So I think you know this is a, a really good direction to be going in. Next question.
1: Next question from Greg Kramer in Washington D.C. asking, I want to explore the highest impact accessories for shooting. Much of it on my iPhone and a 14 Pro. Does the panel have any experience with the Beast Grip rig and their wide telephoto and anamorphic lens add-ons?
0: I haven't seen the Beast Grip. A lot of us are using small rig um, for, for a lot of those accessories and then moment lenses. And the small rigs actually take the moment lenses. So you might, you might want to look at the small rig uh, hard um, uh, case for it and then, and then moment lenses on top of that um, you may find to be pretty solid. All right, we are changing subjects and going into the second hour, and we're really, really excited to have Kelsey Gray here. Hi, Kelsey, can you hear us? Okay.
9: Yes, I can. Pardon me, just had to find that mute button. Yeah,
0: yeah. no, all, always all good. the
9: culprit. Always the culprit. <laughs> yeah, super happy to be here. Thanks for for having me join.
0: Yeah, and I and I said right at the top of the hour, um, you know how I how I found Kelsey was I just I bought the book. I I it was just I bought I bought the book. Uh, you know, and I buy I have a lot of topography books. Um, and I should read more of them, um, but but I, I thought that this was a great uh, book to get into this. And I'm always trying to find books to suggest to people. So like, hey, if you really wanna start thinking about this. So I started going through the, through the book and I was like, oh, we should just really try to get Kelsey on and have her talk about this. So um, so I'm really excited to have you on. And uh, you know, I think that just to kind of set it up, as, as I said at the beginning of the hour, mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I just think that topography is very unknown to a lot of people that do what we do, digital media and so on and so forth. And it's so important because it really tells someone that you have, uh, you know, that you have taste. <laughs> I'm not gonna say, like we want, they get all this graphics and they do all this stuff, but then we have like three different fonts and, you know, and you know, the Papyrus and, and Comic Sans. We all know that we've all seen the Saturday Night Live thing, which is like like such an inside joke for us, you know, for for, for for people who do type, I don't think, I think most people who watch Saturday Night Live had no idea what they were talking about. And they were like, "Why well, just use those fonts all the time. Anyway, mm-hmm. so, um, uh, so I think that, uh, it, it, it's so important for us to understand this and how it integrates into what we're doing. And so few of us actually know how to do this, unless the, unless you came out of print. I spent years in print where there was long discussions about you know very small amounts of, of movement and people being upset. And then we have broadcasters like CNN that just take our fonts and stretch them every time. They, they just kind of stretch <laughs> up and everything down. I literally yeah. can't watch CNN because I just watch those. Th- every time the font stretches up, I'm like, I, I gotta go. I can't, I can't do this. So yeah. anyway. Why don't you introduce yourself as well as the the basic concepts of that? We've got a lot of questions st- stacking up already. So I think it's oh. going to be a really busy, busy hour.
9: Good. Yeah. Um, well, you know the the more you know about anything, the more that you can build tastes and opinions about yeah. that thing. So um I'm happy to help uh, build some some tastes and some preference here.. Um, yeah. So let's see, just a sort of quick, quick bio. Um, I, I really got sort of, um, in deep in typography and in graphic design, probably in grad school. Um, I attended the Maryland Institute College of Art out in Baltimore, Maryland, um, and was exposed to, um, some amazing, um, folks, spaces, um, of course, the, the, Curriculum was incredible there um, and uh, met some people there that would later be my, my mentors and later sort of shape my own tastes and preferences. Um, I worked in the the sort of studio scene for a long time where um, I uh, did everything from sort of like on screen graphics to uh, animation, lots of publications, uh, even dabbled in, uh, in illustration and things like that. Um, And then kind of got a kind of got an itch. I I couldn't sort of sit in one spot for for eight or nine hours a day and and started sort of teaching part time, actually teaching typography one um, at Washington University in St. Louis. And I really liked that that sort of like to be so cliche, that light bulb moment, that aha moment where people would would sort of come in, students would come in and, and not knowing anything about type. Uh it was incredible to sort of be that that shepherd to be that person to say yes this is super niche and esoteric but um here's how incredible it is and here's how you can be like a more um thoughtful and informed designer um right. So that that became of of immense interest to me. And I decided to make the move to teaching full time. Um, so that's what I do right now at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, but I also maintain a, a pretty hefty personal practice um, as well as uh, started writing about five or six years ago. And it and it turned into this. Um, so um, constantly doing something, whether it's for for the young people that I teach uh or for for my own practice or for clients. So yeah. So very quick, quick bio about me.
0: Yeah, and and um, I think that I I think you have a little bit of a, a deck of s- some of the stuff that you've worked on and, and some of the concepts. Is that something that you you have
9: available to you? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to do kind of a walkthrough of that. Yeah. Um, so so folks, you can 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 see some of the work behind the the human face here. Yeah. Um, a lot of what you'll be looking at. Um. I would say it's kind of a more playful expression of typography, uh kind of the flashy, kind of exciting projects. Right. Um, but but I have to admit, some of the um sort of black and white, mundane typesetting, basic presentation of information is sort of just as delicious to work on. Um, so I'll, I'll
0: I, I find that the use of white space is just the thing. Like, you know, like it's you can put the text in there, but understanding exactly I was just throwing something together really, really some text on top of an image yesterday and very quickly, you know, um, threw it together, showed it to the client really fast. Like, here's what we're thinking. And they're like, that looks great. And then, then there was the next half an hour of me making, like measuring everything out and making sure that all the (laughs) little, you know, like everything's all lined up and everything they they like, they liked the first version, but I was like, the second version will be just a little better And it takes. It took longer to do that last little bit than it took to throw it together.
9: what is what is not seen is just as important as what is visible right um so yeah completely agree white space is the thing um let me i'll head over to my desktop here really quickly you're gonna get a glimpse of my sand dune wallpaper and keynote here um so a quick showcase of some playful stuff um, here. I said I, I worked in an animation as well. This was a, a large brand project for Rock, Rockwell Beer Company. Um, and, and what do you
0: what do you animate in?
9: Yeah. So the, the the bit that's animating here is you see how the typography sort of stretches yeah. um, and and sort of flexes. It's so interesting that you mentioned the the CNN stretch type because mm-hmm. there's type that's built to stretch, that right. looks good when it's variable, right? Yep. And then there's, you know, some typefaces that are certainly not built. Uh, the one CNN uses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to trust you in that opinion there. Yeah. Um, but but here we're just being really intentional about sort of how, like how the strokes are animating as the letters. And, sort and
0: of- what, what makes this one uh, easier to stretch?
9: One of the things I would say is the really kind of consistent stroke weight. Um, yeah. So that's going to be like the thickness of the lines, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in typography, this is called contrast. Yeah. Um, so if you think of, um, let's think about the, um, if you've seen like the Vogue masthead or mm-hmm. Harper's Bazaar, um, it's got some really, those letters have some really thick parts and some really thin parts. That's high contrast. Yeah. Whereas if you look at like the BBC logo, Right, mm-hmm. um, those letter forms, those strokes are all very consistent. They're all roughly the same width. Okay, right, that's very right. low contrast. So I think it's the low contrast nature that that allows yeah. this type to flex this way. Um, that's great. Uh, but it's it's more than just the the animation as well. Um, we had a lot of fun with. Um, the different sort of variabilities of the, the logo type. Um, but much more so than that, uh, a real treat to work on was the environmental signage. Um, yeah. the, the concept for this brewery and tasting room was, um, of course, they hopped on that shipping container, uh, trend. Um, <laughs> But we wanted to do something a little bit different. And so since the type sort of, um, you know, on screen allowed itself to stretch and flex, we wanted to do that in the space as well. So you can see that kind of corner wrap on that for like front axes happening.
0: How do you set Um, up when you you have something that's uneven like that? I mean, it's one thing to have the text to know how you're going to print the text when it's flat, but now you've got all these ridges and you're going around a corner. Is it something that you're building in a 3D model, a 3D model of it? Or how do you figure out what that or how do you even deliver that?
9: Yeah, great question. Um, so this was actually in partnership with a local sign painter. This this brewery exists in St. Louis. Um, and so we worked with um, the architectural team who was building up the space. We got those dimensions of the shipping container. And we actually delivered f- a flat file um right. something akin to like an, an illustrator file adobe illustrator um yeah. or or even a pdf i can't remember what that exact delivery is but yeah, yeah. Uh, we actually didn't build out a 3d model for this we delivered the flats to the sign painter and he did the math and yeah. the and the painting uh um, great did an incredible job yeah yeah um also got to work with um Uh, a neon sign fabricator which was pretty Mm -hmm. great
0: um did you just deliver eps files or ai files to the to them and they figure out how they're gonna how they're gonna run the neon
9: yeah yeah they just look at the paths yep um but also part of a huge part of it was packaging design as well so Mm -hmm. um And and typography, of course, existing on you know both levels, on multiple levels, right? And so, like, we have to think about um, things like legibility and readability, of course but but also sort of like how how big should we size the the type so like what point size should it be right yep. Yep. um and that that varies based on the sort of like level of intimacy right mm-hmm. so you're holding a beer can or or soda can or um you know sparkling water really close to you so you can get by with sort of smaller uh, yep. point sizes. But you know, when you're looking at a super graphic, something like the front of a building or a billboard, of course you've got to go larger. So the the fonts that we were choosing that we were specing, right, like had to function at multiple scales at multiple levels. Right. Um, so super fun project to work on.
0: Yeah.
9: Um another one here, these guys, um, they're a brand consulting firm out of DC called Novel. Um mm-hmm. And they were um, really the, the sort of brand tenant was they are are big on what they call the experience ecosystem. So they were sort of like one part creative, one part um, sort of scientific, almost. Right. Um, and so they they commissioned a series of illustrations uh, that sort of balanced that sort of creative um, and and analytical right. Um, and so here's a series of of graphics that I created for them.
0: Um, it has a very classic look to it, you know, like the, with the, that's where you, and do you do, yeah. you, do you see that as something that, that serif kind of oftentimes brings you? <laughs> because a lot of us don't see serif very often anymore.
9: It's, it's really interesting. And you, you talk to folks in the type community and, and some folks are, um, you know, like diehard sans serif, right? They think they're sort of cleaner, more contemporary um, and then on, sort of on the other side of the coin, right? You have folks that um, love the serif. Um, right.
0: And serif, to, by the way, for, for those watching, is are the uh, you can explain to serif what's the probably more technically than I can.
9: Um, sure. So the so technically, a serif is like a, an entry stroke or an exit stroke um, of a letter. So if you're thinking about a capital T, uh, a sans serif is just going to have a horizontal bar and a vertical bar, right? No frills, no ornamentation. Um, But if you think about the T in like Times New Roman, right, there are sort of those little hangers on, right? Those sort of entry strokes uh, Mm -hmm. that attach to those horizontal and vertical um, components of the letter form. Um, And those are are the more traditional letter. Uh, They automatically lean a little bit more bookish, uh, a little bit more academic, right? Right. Um, those are our letter forms that have serifs. Okay. And then sans serifs are the ones that do not have those additional little strokes, um, sort of at the ends of the, the letter forms. Um, which one is easier to read? I'm I'm asking myself that my, my own question, um, gosh, there's lots of studies out there and I, I think they're pretty inconclusive. Um, I think the thing that, that, um, Sort of good designers, designers worth their salt are thinking about is um, what works the best based on context.
0: Right, right, right. And, and I think the feel, you know, the feel. I mean, I, I definitely when I'm using a serif font, I'm I'm thinking about it being feeling classic, it feeling, sure. um, you know, something that's got some heft to it or something that's important uh, because it's it's again, it's not something most of us because we're using computers and we're watching a lot of visual things. Generally, not most people aren't using serif fonts, and so so it's kind of it's a it's a a kickback to something you know uh, that we've done in the you know in the past, but not in a bad way. I'm just saying, like like I like rustic things, and yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a little little rustic at times, but it, but it but it but what i but I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I mean it in a mm-hmm. in a way that 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 gives it a classic feel to it.
9: Yeah. I think it's it's all about context. I do think that, that Sans Serif is kind of the 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 preference on screen, just yes. from what I've seen. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, gosh, let's see. Let's, we can keep scrubbing yeah, through some work if you let's want. Let's or keep, yeah, keep we can dive into questions. Yeah, we'll
0: dive into questions very soon. <laughs> so okay, gonna, okay, We'll do this for another excellent. five minutes, and then and then we're gonna jump into the questions.
9: Sure. Okay. Please stop me whenever. Yeah. Um, great. So you're you're looking at kind of a weird. Um, we're looking stencil here. Um, and this is one of the things that I created in grad school about 10 years ago. Um, and this is the, the letter maker stencil. I'm actually gonna hold up one in my little thumbnail um, if you're able to, to see it here. Um, it is this. Here. it's a piece of acrylic and it's um kind of an unconventional looking stencil right like typically mm. when you think of a stencil you see an a and you make the same repeatable a so
0: and, so and these are all the the pieces that you need to build all the letters
9: you you got it yeah yeah, yeah really cool. um so this kind of lettering is called modular lettering right. right so like think of modular furniture think about Legos right like mm. Lego gives you all the parts and pieces you need to construct an X-wing or, you know, a tropical paradise. Okay. Um, so what this does is it, it gives you the parts and pieces to, to kind of craft your own letter forms. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is really interesting or or was really interesting for me, this pursuit, because it sort of balances this, um, sort of three things, um, typography course, Mm -hmm. which I'm interested in is why I'm here. Um, my my interest in building tools, um, that also really sort of sow the seeds for the book as well, giving people a tool um and also, um it's sort of like, a, a lot of my work sort of surrounds delight in the daily or taking something right. that's conventional or expected and kind of turning it on its, on its head or um, giving it kind of a new or fresh perspective.
7: Yeah.
9: Um, and so this allowed me to actually build a really incredible community of people. I, I toured this um, internationally, did lots of different workshops, um, and it was a, like a really great entry point for people who are maybe not so confident in, in their drawing skills. Mm-hmm. Um, but Do people how to buy these
0: stencils? Do you sell the stencils?
9: I do sell them. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think the URL is, I think it's stencil.com. I mm-hmm. think lettermaker.com was taken. Cool. Um, but I, I actually, I sort of put this project on pause for a little while um, mm-hmm. because part of design, right, is is prototyping and, and iterating, right? Mm-hmm. Just as you said, you, you presented something to a client and we're like, well, let me iterate it a little bit. Let me tweak yeah, it yeah, a yeah, little exactly. bit, right? So um, I've actually, I'm releasing it very soon um in a thinner material. So this is actually still a quite thick acrylic. Um, yeah. I've I've found a newer and better stencil material. Um, that's great. Yeah. So uh very fun project, made a lot of things sort of centering around that. Um yeah that's great. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'll I'll move a little faster here. Mm-hmm. Um just to showcase of how um I like to experiment with with letter form. Um now what did you this, now
0: what, what yeah what what is that one right there I saw that in, when I was looking at your yeah what what is that for is that just a close up of what you had before there
9: It is. Yes. So uh, this image, which is like you're getting a a little bit of of grain here, strangely, in this image, Mm -hmm. Um, it was for creative process. This was a um, kind of a workshop experience um, Mm -hmm. also taking place in St. Louis. Uh, I used to live there. Uh, This was run by the St. Louis Fashion Fund. And it was sort of a a series of salons that that brought people together to talk about architecture, literature. Poetry, design, fine arts, all these things. And it was, it was centered in the, the sort of fashion district in St. Yeah. Louis, the historically the, the sort of fashion epicenter of St. Louis. And so the letter forms here are digitally made out of sort of like stitches, sewing mm-hmm. machine stitches. Um, so kind of a nod there. What font the, is that? The location. Um, it's one that I made.
0: Really? Yeah.
9: yeah. It'd be fun
0: to extrude that and render it.
9: Yeah. Um, yeah very doable. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Um, it looks really nice. It's really nice. Um, Thank you. Uh, we have a ton of... We're going to come back to this, but we have a ton this, of questions stacking up. I want Let's you know, do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's go to the first question.
1: Okay. First one in from uh, Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Andy wants to know which typeface is considered the most legible for video graphics?
9: Ooh, for video graphics. Um, hard to say definitively which one is the best. Yeah. Um, because, again, it's it's all about context. One thing I would probably recommend um, in terms of legibility um, is, is to sort of find a nice kind of Goldilocks um, uh, a font. So, for example, not too thin. That's not going to be legible very well at a distance. Sometimes if something goes a little bit too bold, the letters can sort of kludge together. Right? They can sort of melt together. That can cause some legibility issues as well, especially if we're talking about from a distance. You know, maybe some of your viewers are looking at graphics on screen in an airport, right? They're moving on a moving sidewalk or something. So um, not too thin, letters are gonna fall apart. Not too thick, they're gonna kludge together. Okay. Um, also typically fonts that have high X heights. Uh um, what's an X height? Can you explain yeah, X height? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get there. Um so let's see if I, um, I'm wondering, do I have it in the book? Yes, I do. Okay. Um, so I'll hold this up on screen. I hope yeah, you're able yeah, to see it. See. Yeah, we can see it. Yeah, we can see it. So I'll define it first. Uh, the X height is basically the height of the lowercase letter in any font. Okay. So we're going to get technical here. Um, here's here's an illustration. I, I hope I have it. Yeah. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. A little, little too. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Yep, we can see it.
9: Yes. Okay. So you can see the sort of height um, of where's my let me see where's my finger there the yeah the height of the the sort of main part of this Mm -hmm. lowercase letter. Okay. Um, The the part this green part right here this is considered an ascender. That's any part of the letter that goes above that x height. Right. And then a descender is an e letter form like a lowercase p, lowercase q, they have those little tails that extend below mm. the baseline. Okay. So X height, height of the lowercase letter. Um, typically fonts that have high X heights are going to be very legible. Okay. Yeah. Because basically what you're doing is the proportion of the lowercase to the uppercase is the the lowercase is a little bit taller. Right. Okay. Those letter forms become a little bit more open. Okay. It's a little bit more of an easy read. Um What's interesting, though, is that not all X heights are sort of created equal. So let's say you're setting uh, Times New Roman in 12 point. It's a, a good baseline for a lot of people. Um, and then let's say you're using something like uh, Gotham. That's a really popular sans serif, also in 12 point. OK, uh, I see some thumbs up for Gotham. All right. the the Even though they're the same point size, their X heights are going to be different. Right right? So something to, to kind of think through. Um, also, I would say, I know that a lot of, say, news outlets use a lot of all caps. I love all caps. I do not think it's shouting for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unpopular opinion. Um, but lowercase letters, when you have those little ascenders and descenders, they're a little bit easier to make out on screen, right? <laughs> um just because the viewer can really distinguish those little details easier right. than some all caps um, yeah. settings. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's hard to say definitively use that font, right? Right. No, right, right. No, absolutely. But I can offer some but, some insight there.
0: No, That's great. We we're the, the most common thing that that we say on this show is it depends. <laughs> so so so, <laughs> so so like you know so so it's uh, so uh, I, to- we totally get you. Uh, go ahead, Courtney.
9: Uh, good. Good.
5: Oh, can you recording sorry well it's interesting uh, having designed a lot of teleprompter electronic teleprompters over the years there's always been a discussion about uh, typefaces on video which is easier to read because they used to insist uh, we'd always get teleprompter scripts in all caps and I would insist that since we went to uh, uh, adjustable size typefaces mm-hmm. that mixed case uppercase and lowercase uh, sans serif Uh, was a lot easier to read especially for moving text on the screen Mm -hmm. uh do you think that's true because it gives you uh when you're reading text aloud especially it gives you cues as to where the beginning of a sentence is where the end of a sentence is uh what's an acronym versus a word and if it's all caps uh you lose those little cues Mm -hmm. so if you're reading script or if it's visible on the screen do you find that uh Uh, descenders are upper and lowercase mixed case works a lot better than all uppercase.
9: Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I think mixed cases is a great way to go. I, I really love your case in point about acronyms as well. Um, us being able to sort of parse out those little linguistic differences. Um, uh, I, I wrote a paper last year, um, about it called capital letters might save your life. And, uh, it's, it's about actually typography in, um, sort of like medical settings. And, uh, there was a study that was done on what's called look alike, sound alike drugs, um, where there, there might be a drug, um, gosh, I, I'm not going to remember the drug names here, uh, on, on screen, but they might, there might be two drugs that start with hydro and then end in zine, right? And then the middle part of the word, the first one might be like Thala uh, and the, the sort of second drug might be Oro, right? right? And so there was a study that was done where this um, uh, the this sort of study was about they actually capitalized that middle part, right? The The, the part of the language that was different in each drug. Um, and they called these tall man letters, which I think is actually really sort of silly and charming. Um, but what they were doing was they were sort of testing to see if those little typographic switches could help doctors, nurses, medical professionals. Right. Uh, folks who are, are handling drugs. Their hope was that it would help those people differentiate between those two words and therefore not make a medication error. Right. So and people- did, did it work? It's it's sort of inconclusive. Um they they found some success in it, but they also tried a couple of things like bolding those right. uh those two parts of the words or highlighting those two parts of the words. I will say it worked well enough to where um the the FDA has a, a list that they've published of look-alike, sound-alike drugs, right? Where they are using those tall man letters. So right. it's it's out there, but it's not enforced. Um so that's just a tangent to sort of say, mixed case can be hugely important for yeah. our eyes that- to be able to make those those visual distinctions.
5: The tall man words is that sometimes referred to as camel case, where you have two words that are run together with a capital in
0: the middle. Or-
9: oh, I've not heard of that no. before. Yeah, we, we
0: call case. it yeah. When we, well, we we a lot of camel cases is, is regular. I mean, what I would, well, I guess what we would consider re- lowercase and uppercase, right? And then. Mm-hmm. Set of all caps. Uh, we we call it camel case. I know it's a common common that. term in our world. Well, I, I love one of that. Your, where,
5: where you have to like it in a URL or something where you can't, where spaces aren't allowed, where you'll run mm-hmm. two words together, the second word will be capitalized, and and so it'll have a capital letter letter in the middle of the word. That's what I always call camel case. Yeah, go ahead, I,
9: I I use oh, that ahead. for file naming conventions. It it really works. Yeah.
0: Well, kind of. It, if, if, <laughs> you know, like like So there, when you, if you do a lot of Unix scripts, anybody who puts a capital in anything, you're like, who did this? You know, <laughs> like you're like it has to be all lowercase because then I can't type it fast enough. Go ahead, Chris. Uh,
3: Kelsey, first of all, fascinating. Thank you for coming. Um, I, I, I'm very curious. Is is there any, um, is there any data, like hard data, that has been or studies that have been done that address legibility and retention when it comes to using all caps versus sentence case or uh do do we normally use the term a uh, title case you know like like the typical bad powerpoint slide where the beginning of every <laughs> word is capitalized and what the what does that even mean and
6: mm-hmm. and
3: how do we do well? Of and the don't need to be capitalized. Well, who made that rule, you know? Like, uh, it, but is there any data on that? Because I, for one, like to be able to say to people, well, 75% of you know, dentists all prefer this gum, you know?
9: Yeah, gosh, it's it's hard to say. Uh, it depends. How about I, I, I give that as, as an answer, Alex? <laughs> okay, um, exactly. I, I'm I'm struggling to sort of recall any specific data because sort of the circles that um, my my um, brain sort of lives in the sort of kinds of projects I'm working on. It's usually more sort of publication focused, so we're going off of things like Chicago, MLA, um, APA kind of like styling. So, like in that case, like yes, of the these kinds of articles and prepositions would be lowercase, proper nouns uppercase. So I'm kind of like leaning on those kinds of rules. Um, but in terms of hard data, I think that's such a fantastic question. Um, and I think the easiest answer that I can give you right now is I'm not certain, but I'm sure right. it's out there.
3: Well, and I, have, I you? know that oh, as ahead. a okay. kid, learning how to read, I cheated a lot. And mm. uh, it's, a, it's a long story, but the shortest version of it was I didn't read, but I looked for words that had a shape. Mm-hmm. So like if the if the reading assignment was, you know, what color was Timmy's bike? Well, I didn't read the assignment because I was cheating. So what I, I mean, I could read, but I couldn't read well. And so I would look for words. The word bike has a tall thing and then Mm -hmm. some stuff and then another tall thing and then some stuff. So then I'd scan through the story looking for a word that was that shape.
9: Yeah. And
3: then I'd go, oh, there it is. It's bike. Timmy's bike was green and and that was just and i wasn't scanning for the word bike i was looking for the shape and so to me all caps is like well everything's the same shape
9: okay it's less
3: legible we're going to move the reason gonna keep... I'm,
0: sorry go ahead, go
9: ahead oh no sorry the the reason that i'm i'm sort of like looking off over here is i'm looking at my other monitor um and searching for um I, I won't be able to find it here since I'm sure we have several questions. Here's one great article about readability and legibility if I'm able to drop it in chat. Um,
7: yeah.
9: Okay. Uh, and then there's another one that's that's all about sort of word shape. Um, with, it, it, exactly like you're talking about, right? So you're looking at form rather than, than sort of content. Um, so this is a great medium article that I've referenced before and shared with my students. Um, but there's one other one, it's better. I just got to dig it up. Maybe it's yeah. something I can share with Lindsay, and you can he can follow up a little bit later.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question.
1: And it's from David Brady in New York, New York. David wants to know, why does Comic Sans get such a bad rap? Oh,
9: my goodness. I <laughs> knew this question was coming. Um, okay. Um, some people think because it's it's so popular, because it's a system font, that means, right, it's going to be on all your PCs, it's going to be on all your Macs, Right um that since it was sort of an option in those early days right and it's got this sort of like childlike sort of cartoonish look about it um people sort of began to sort of misuse it right i said the word context before um if you're going to a very serious setting and you see comic sans there's sort of a great irony there or it's it's sort of like oh, that's not so appropriate for this setting right but but when you see it maybe in a kids classroom or in a comic right um then that then that sort of feels right um and so i i think one of the reasons it got such a bad rap was because of its use in those sort of unconventional or unlikely scenarios um but let me tell you comic sans one of the most legible fonts out there um the reason is um and and Chris, it's so interesting that you shared what kind of reader that you were as a kid. Thanks for sharing that. Um, There's there's
3: still have problems, actually.
9: Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's all kinds of readers. Right. Um, Folks that look for word shape, Um, those that that are dyslexic. Right. Right. Part of those that, that have dyslexia, one of their problems is they, they have sort of struggles differentiating between letter forms. Okay. There's some really common letter pairs that can look really similar to those eyes. Um, and Comic Sans, because it's so wiggly, because it's so imperfect. Next time, next time you use it. Okay. Which, which maybe never, but next time you've 20, got 25. it up on the screen, look, there's not a single straight line in yeah. that font. OK. Right. And, and part of that uh, negligence, that sort of casting aside of perfect geometry actually works in its favor. It is so, so legible. Uh, and there's a whole there's a bunch of folks right now that are, are trying to make dyslexic typefaces that have a lot of strange characteristics, a lot of organic forms uh, to help readers differentiate between letter forms. So it gets a lot of hate, Comic Sans. I get it. I, it's sort of a joke. It's sort of a meme now, right? But it's actually really functional.
1: Next question. Bunsak Durji from Indian, uh mm-hmm. India says, uh, greeting panel, which uh, typeface, sans serif or serif, are best for lower thirds and which are your favorites?
9: Let's see. Okay. I'm I'm a bit naive here. Tell me what a lower third is. The lower
0: third is is the is the is the um the graphic that goes down below us to say our names. You know, so that or in uh-huh. in, in, in your in, in the UK it's called a strap. But it's a, I think it's so much better strap them. Uh, yeah. so but but the it's that it's that bar at the bottom with the uh, uh, with the two you know your name and where you're working from.
9: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Okay. Um, So some interesting industry lingo I'm not familiar with there. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, Gosh, I think that the sort of same answer or the the answer I would give is the same answer I would give um, earlier, which is sort of that Goldilocks, middle ground, not too bold, not too thin, high X heights. Um, And and something I I didn't mention was, um, so the space between two letters, okay, whatever that space is, that's called kerning. You may have heard that that term before okay the space between all the letters along a word or a line that's called tracking or more commonly these days letter spacing okay um so typically if you um especially if this what did you say strap
7: uh or or or, or lower third we can call it both
9: um right typically if it's sort of flashing quickly or animated or if your user is moving right Um, I would say, try to find a font or go in and do this yourself. Add a little bit more letter spacing. Again, this is great for distance reading. This is great for movement or animation. What it's going to allow is to help us sort of see the differences between letters. We're adding more white space. That's the thing, right? Um, So adding a little bit of tracking there can help as well.
1: Next question. David Brady's back from New York, New York. Uh what is it about Helvetica from a design typeface perspective that makes that font so ubiquitous?
9: Mm, okay. So there's, there's a real sort of love in the design community and beyond for, um, Swiss modernism, right? And that's where Helvetica is, is sort of coming from. Swiss modernism is this kind of style where, um, it's very clean. There's a the use of sans serif. There's lots of white space, very flat graphics. Okay. We've got lots of white, black, red, maybe another single color. Okay. Um, it's, it's sort of, uh, um, uh sort of an an honoring of the the sort of clean aesthetic okay um and helvetica i think was just sort of right place right time um especially when we think about um the the design of the new york city subway system right which is the sort of classic example of helvetica um it's it's really great in lots of different weights. Though I think Helvetica light gets a little bit too light, but when we're talking in the regulars, the bolds, the blacks, right? Um, it's really legible at a distance. It has a decent X height. I feel like I'm a little bit of a broken record here. Um, and I think also in the hands of some really famous designers like Massimo Vignelli, for example, um, really sort of knew how to use that typeface, okay? Uh, and apply it really successfully. And so, so many designers have picked up uh, on that um sort of era and design, picked up on that aesthetic of, of Swiss modernism and followed in the footsteps of, of Massimo Vignelli and and Carl and Gerstner and, and others. Um and gosh, one of the answers I could give is it just works because they used it so well. Um, so it's it, it's not so much about how successful is the typeface or the font. Okay, those things are different. We can get to that in a second. Um, But how well is it used? Right. And I think Vignelli used it really well, sort of gave us a really great example. Okay. And then others have continued to, um, to harness that aesthetic sense.
0: Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah.
3: Yeah, The first couple minutes of the Helvetica documentary uh, do a really great job at showing just how ubiquitous it is. It's, it's like, you know, a couple of minutes of B-roll of New York Mm -hmm. city where it is everywhere. Even yeah. the tops of the buses with the bus number. And, and uh, I, I agree, it works. It, mm-hmm. n- nobody said, oh, I can't read that. They might say, right. yeah, well, yeah, it looks boring. But they never said, I can't read it. And I always like to mention that uh, if people don't know, on the DVD, if you can find it, of the Helvetica documentary is a whole second documentary, which is mm-hmm. stuff that didn't make the director's cut. Oh, and my goodness. And it's all still super interesting. Wow. I yeah. love that movie. Ahead, I, a real friend I can sit down and watch that movie with. Go ahead, Mitch.
1: Yeah. I'm very interested in the fact that a lot of these uh, fonts that we use in the video business nowadays were created well before video was available. And Helvetica is one of them that's been around a very, very long time. And other fonts that sort of somehow found their way into video and being very, very readable. It's an interesting phenomenon next question. Next question from Tuomo Coloma from Helsinki, Finland. As a topography expert, what do you think about the ubiquitous use of an emoji, a threat or an opportunity?
9: Oh good. my goodness. What a great question. Um, ubiquitous use of emojis. Okay. So, um, threat or opportunity it depends on which emoji you're using i guess uh no but it, but in all seriousness right like an emoji is just another tool of communication okay um and so when another word for graphic design we see this a lot in and curricula right is visual communication and anything that you see is communicating to you okay um and so a lot of what what we're dealing with in graphic design is we have uh kind of two ways of of creating that communication, type and image. Okay. You could sort of include color in image as well. Um, and so when I say type, typography, right? Um we've got things like point size, case, weight, all these things that we've been discussing. Um, image, right? Um, that includes photography, that includes illustration, um, that includes um shape, form, these kinds of things, right? Um, and so I, I, think emojis, uh, personally love them. That's great. Maybe don't like include them in an email to, you know, that prospective job that you're going after. Um, but th- I think that they're just another communication tool, right? Um, a- an example of visual communication rather than typographic communication. The thing that, that, that we as graphic designers are, are sort of grappling with is when is it appropriate or when does it make sense to use type? to communicate something versus, could I do that same thing with an image, right? Or when do I need both? Okay, so I I think uh, in terms of your emoji usage, sort of you do you uh, on, on one hand, but also think about like, what do I need to do to communicate here? Is just an emoji enough? Or do I need to include language to support that? Or can I just use that text instead? No emoji necessary. Up to you.
1: Next question. Morgan Price, Victoria, British Columbia in Canada. Uh, Kelsey, when why do you recommend animating text in presentations and videos? For example, squishing and squashing, like on the Rockwell animation on your website. Are there any specific tools you like to use?
9: Ooh, okay. So a couple questions in there. Um, I'll start with with the tools. Um, When I'm animating type, I'm usually doing that in After Effects. Um, Yeah, yeah. even if you're sort of like a Premiere Pro fan or if you're using other sort of like video editing software there, um, I find that for sort of purely typographic um, animations or even type that's gonna be overlaid on top of video footage, I would say do that in After Effects first, then pull it into Premiere or wherever else you're, you're working. Um, that's typically the way that, that I'll work with animated type. Um, and then when to animate or when not to animate. Um, I would say, don't just do it because it's flashy. Um, there's, there's got to be something that necessitates the need for that motion. Okay, like what is motion really adding to it? Um, so, so for example, um, if you're thinking about sort of uh, credits for a movie, right? And we have, we, let's imagine we have like a black background, okay, and then a font doesn't matter. We've got some type that slowly fades in. Okay. Imagine maybe we've also got a swell of music as well. Okay. If that type were just to boop, appear, right, without that slow animation, it's going to give you a different kind of feeling, right? So in that case, the animation is really adding to the, the concept, really adding to the mood, right? And And really adding to the emotion that you're wanting the user to feel. So I say animating type So cool. Uh, Often called kinetic typography in in the industry. But don't just do it because you can. There's got to be some kind of purpose to it. For Rockwell Beer Co., um, one of their sort of brand tenants was fluidity. Um, These guys um, did not brew the same beer year to year right? So any month you show up to their tasting room, they're going to have a totally different menu. And so this idea of fluidity, it made sense not to have a static logo, right? It made sense to add sort of motion to it. Um, and so conceptually, it fit, right? So we animated it. Um, but, but be thinking about that before you just go into the Adobe Bridge presets and, uh, you know, do the flames or, or something like that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I, I do a lot of keynotes and yeah. how every piece of text comes in is I have a, a whole format that I have planned for that. So it's, it's something that, you know, like it means something every time it does. Yeah. Uh, next, next, next question.
1: From Talalak Lopez Waterman in Wilmington, Delaware, are font styles like clothes? that they change by decade or are they timeless?
9: Ooh, I love this question. I love all these questions. Um, Let's see. There are some fonts that people would argue are quite timeless. Um, so uh, I'll I'll rattle off a few here. Um, Bodoni is one you may have heard of. Um, Gotham, Helvetica, uh, Baskerville, Georgia. A lot of these are are kind of quite timeless. A lot of the original sort of system fonts uh, that came on those first Macs, right, are, are kind of now considered timeless. Um, but absolutely, they change season to season. And I think it also varies designer to designer, client to client as well. You have trends uh, in type design and in graphic design, just like you would have trends anywhere else. Um, but again, all about context, all about application, all about client needs, perhaps your preference. Um, right now, I would say in the sort of the type landscape, we're seeing a lot of. Um, kind of anti-modernism actually, anti-Helvetica. Um, and, and I don't mean to say that there's a negativity towards Helvetica. I just mean there's some real positive energy towards creating fonts that have sort of more, more wiggle, more movement. Um, psychedelic fonts were actually really popular about a year ago. Um, and so we're, we're seeing a lot of those organic forms as kind of a pushback to the clean modernism aesthetic of, of sort of the mid 20th century. Um, so yes and yes. Right. Some are right. absolutely timeless, uh, but yes, there are definitely trends.
1: Next question. John Snyder, Reno, Nevada, asking, are typography choices dependent on audience demographics as well as the content or solely the content that is being presented?
9: Ooh. OK. Another great question that I, I think I'll pull up a slide for if that's OK. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So let me let me get oriented here. Um. Keynote is telling me that there's an update. Thank you, Keynote. Okay, uh, here we go. All right. So you should be seeing like a, a highway sign right now on screen. Okay, excellent. Thanks for those thumbs up. Um, so even though like we we might not pay much attention to this, this is typography, okay? This is styled. Um, typography, Put simply, is the visual component of the written word. Maybe we should have started the hour with that. It's the way that type looks, okay? The way that text looks, right? The visual component of the written word. And so, like, there's a lot of visuals applied here. There are a lot of decisions being made here. Um, and so if we look at this, right, it's it's kind of bold. We've got a mixed use of cases. So exit is in all caps, um, but Chattahoochee River, that's in mixed case or title case. Um the the numbers okay one ninety eight and two uh, are are larger again kind of to aid in and legibility there, um, and so if we sort of were to to strip some of the um, the typography out of it, we'd simply just be looking at the text right. So this is the difference between type and text. All right, text is just what it says. Okay. This is what our copywriters are dealing with. All right. Um, but you put it in the hands of the graphic designers or other creatives, right? Then it's, it's our job to sort of apply typography to that. Okay. Um, and so going back to this, this is actually called highway Gothic. Yes. There is a name for this typeface highway Gothic. Um, and uh, as you'll, you'll see here, I've got a source at the bottom. And is it of the really screen. just
0: created for highways? Is, is that like, is it highway Gothic? Cause it's like what everybody uses on every sign
9: that was its intention yes yes to be created for um and so i'm I'm sourcing some of these images from uh, a url down there that i invite you to explore more um it's practicaltypography.com uh this is butterick's practical typography a great resource especially if you've made some decisions and you need to to provide some evidence for those decisions like you're going to a client and you're saying here's why i'm doing this this is a great source for you. Um, and again, I can drop the URL in or, or some generous person here can can copy and paste that um, in the in the chat. Um, and so we could look at this example,
0: right? It'd <laughs> be hard to do it 75 and miles an hour.
9: This is a beautiful font, right? But we can't read it. Right, right. Uh, especially if if you're my husband and you're going ninety miles down down the freeway, okay. <laughs> um, and so, even though this is a, um, a, a a beautiful font, it doesn't work in an application. Um, uh, Michael, really quickly, remind me what that question was.
0: Oh, uh,
1: Mitchell. Uh, it's the uh, Mitchell, typography choices depending on audience demographics as well as the content or solely the content that is being presented
9: yes okay thank you mitchell um so here we we have to think about audience and we have to think about context right um because our audience is needing to make quick decisions um they're moving quickly physically okay we can go back to this other slide here right um some we, we also have to consider like the emotional state of some people as well um there are, are some people who have real trouble with navigating you know the the freeway through uh, through city streets right so some of our users could be quite stressed as well so we we wouldn't want to you know use a font here that's really aggressive right or really confrontational here too right um so we want something clean functional see the tracking here how spaced out these letters are okay they're quite bold yeah i see mitchell you're sort of making these kind of motions with your hand these sort of staccato motions yeah, really easy to read. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, we have to think about demographic. We have to think about audience. We have to think about context, environment, emotional states, all these things, if we can.
1: Next question. From Bill Davis on our panel and in San Diego, California, Typography is such a subtle art. How do you suggest newbies start to notice the factors that distinguish something like similar sans serif fonts?
9: Mm, okay. Um, another really great question. So, newbies out there, um, I of course I'm going to encourage everybody to pick up my book, but it's it's more about crafting letter forms, sort of making your own. Um, there's a little bit of observational kind of exercises in here as well that can help you get to notice more uh, type kind of in your environment, which is which is also great um, for for that. Um, but newbies, I'm really going to recommend. You know I'm an academic because I'm giving you all the book recommendations. I'm really going to recommend Thinking with Type, okay? Um, This is by um, Ellen Lupton, a really famed designer and design writer in the industry. She's been doing it for decades um, she's actually publishing a new edition coming out soon, a third edition of this. Um, and it's got all that technical goodness that we were talking about, everything from X-Height to, to tracking with really beautiful examples of posters, data visualizations, on-screen graphics, little bits of history in here as well. Um, really great resource for, um, for for folks new to the field. So highly recommend her book as well. Um And and lastly, I would just say um, start to sort of try on some fonts for size. Um, How do you know that you're going to like a new dish? You've got to try it. How do you start to pay attention to different uh, flavor profiles, right, or different uh, preparations of cuisine? You have to try them, right? So expose yourself to lots of different fonts, okay? Next time you open a Google Doc or text edit document and and start typing something, try setting type in, in a different font that you've never used before right? The more you expose yourself, the more you practice those observation skills, the more you notice those details, you'll start to be able to distinguish one font from another.
1: Next question. Dave Troutman from Edmonton, Canada, asking, are ligatures still important to typesetting as much as they used to be?
9: They are. Uh, Okay. So um, ligatures, for those that don't know, is basically a a custom glyph um, or a little unit of type where two letters have been clued together. Um, I love Mitchell. I, I keep looking at your screen and you're doing little hand signals. I love it. Um, so let me let me pull up a page in in my book here. Um, so this is you, you might see if you're typing the word Swift. Okay, after you type that T, you may notice that that word or Google Docs replaces the F and the T as separate glyphs as a little combined unit. Okay. Um, So here, an illustration in my book kind of showing you ligatures. Um, So instead of an F and an L, okay, instead they would be combined. The way that I'm showing it here is actually a reference to old wood and metal type, okay, Um, because the F and the L may have been literally separate pieces of wood. Okay. And then a ligature was actually a separate piece of wood. Okay. With that, that F and L combined. All right. The typesetters would use to physically replace those two separate uh, characters. So it was a little bit of an efficiency thing, um, but also um, it would sort of save space right? Um, sometimes having that physical space, that physical width of wood, um, added too much space to the line, they could sort of tighten up the word, tighten up the spacing by replacing it with a ligature. Um, so it's very practical in terms of, you know, uh, traditional typesetting, the way that we're thinking of it there. Um, when we're thinking about digital setting, okay, so this is anything on screen, right? This could be a website, this could be any kind of on-screen graphics, um, any place where you're sort of setting type, um, type designers, the so the people who are drawing the letter forms are absolutely still drawing ligatures, um, but it's more so these days about sort of aesthetic. We're not so concerned, especially on screen, right about pixel real estate as much, okay, because we could just sort of shrink the point size, we could make other accommodations rather than having to force a ligature in there. Um, And so are they still in use? Yes. A lot of times they are um, used for aesthetic purposes. Um, And a lot of um, fonts that you'll see actually have those hard coded in. Um, So you would actually have to go in and like turn that off, turn off ligatures. Um, Sometimes it just makes more sense to have an F and a T connect. So you don't have that like visual disruption of that overhang of the F hitting the T. Uh, Lots of different reasons uh, to use ligatures or not to use them. But are they still around? You bet.
1: Next question. Talalik Lopez-Waterman in Wilmington asking, can a brand own a font? Can they keep others from using it?
9: Ooh, okay. Um, So can they own a font? Yes. Uh, Can they prevent others from using it? This is a a tricky question uh, because I, I think it sort of opens a larger door, a larger conversation about, like, can we prevent anyone on the Internet from using anything, Right. Um, So there's lots of conversations now about intellectual property when we think about NFTs and image usage and copyright. Um, So, right. This is a much larger conversation. What I see a lot of brands doing, um, IBM is a fantastic example, um, and also the Cooper Hewitt Museum as well. Also a great example. They will commission uh, type design foundries or design studios to create a custom font or a custom typeface for them, right, they will use it for their brand. And then they'll share it out, they'll make it open source. Um, so you may have seen IBM Plex, that's pretty common um, in, uh, in Google system, right, pretty accessible there. Um, so that was created for IBM. So they they own that IP, but they're making it open source, so others can use it, right?
0: And. And it saves them a lot of money in the long run, right? Because if you're having to pay for if you if you have to license all of those those fonts,
9: absolutely, yeah. Um, so so fonts have license agreements, just like uh, images and so many other things do, right? And so uh, for those that don't know, uh, for you to be able to use a font, first you must purchase it. But when you are purchasing, you have to purchase a number of licenses, and that's based on desktops uh, and sometimes based on on views as well, number of views. Um, and so sort of you're, so if you have a company
0: with a hundred thousand people and you have to, and technically you should be buying, buying that font for every one of them, it becomes relatively inexpensive to hire someone to build, say, I want something that looks a lot like we have, I have a lot of brands I work with that have a lot of their own fonts because they're like every year they, they actually get a new one and they slowly building up their, yeah, a couple, these are. Big, big companies, <laughs> so yeah. a couple of new ones yeah. there that they that they can use, but that, that means that they, they pay. And how much does it usually cost if someone wants to commission a font? Like how much would you, I don't know, I'm putting you on the spot. How much would somebody charge if someone said, I need you to build a font for me?
9: Oh my goodness. Okay. That's, that's a, another one where I say it depends um, right. because it, it's going to depend on the the foundry that does it. Um, so uh, for example, if you are wanting to build a house and you want Jeannie gang, a really famous architect to design this house for you, you're going to pay a right. premium. Um, but if you want a local architecture firm to do it, that number is going to be different. Right. Um, and so I, I think that number is really dependent on the foundry that, that you want. What's work the range
0: with. of, of, of costs.
9: Oh my gosh! Um, Hard to say. You could easily do tens of thousands.
1: Right, right, right.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Next question,
1: Tony Fugua from Indianola, asking how has generative AI began to affect typography?
9: This is new territory for me, honestly. Um, What what I'm seeing. perhaps not so much from AI, but what I'm beginning to see in different um, kinds of, of programming language like P5, uh, people using Python and Drawbot and processing, they're doing a lot of what's called generative typography, where um, the designer is sort of putting in um, some some commands, essentially, right? Uh, where they're wanting the type to do this, look this way, be this color, right? They're sort of setting those, those basic parameters and then they're letting the machine run it, right? So that in itself, Oh. that that sort of study is is generative typography um there's always a human on one end right creating those parameters and then the machine is sort of spitting that out um but in terms of um gosh i'm trying to think of any examples where i,
1: I no, never ahead. thought of that
0: i just had never thought of that so so you, you are they spitting out lots of font options like when you put in the parameters
9: so um Let's see, a, a fun example that, that I can think of is uh, there's one, it's called, any of you that, that are familiar with code, you may uh, be familiar with the, the key command font face, uh, where you're sort of choosing the font for your um, your, your website, um, that HTML language. Uh, there's a website, I think it's called Font Face, where it actually activates your, your camera. And you can make expressions with your face, and you are actually, based on your expressions, the proportions of your face, you're changing the parameters of the type. Okay, so the type will be fatter or thinner, um, or be taller or shorter, um, which is bonkers, I know. And then you can actually uh, export it and use it, like export it, download it, and use it, and it is literally your face, Um, And so there's some sort of fun things out there like that happening. Um, I have a a colleague of mine, Catherine Plone, is doing a lot of really interesting uh, stuff in terms of um, generative ecological type where she'll input a value, not like weight or width or height, um, but sort of like resiliency or growth. Right. Um, and so she's she's building examples of type and information graphics that if you turn the growth up really high, the um, the lines, the stroke weights are going to sort of permeate the screens sort of faster and do some interesting things. Um, so I'm, I'm speaking a little bit vague here because it's really difficult to describe yeah. without visualizing. Apologies, yeah. uh, podcast only listeners. Um but it's it's sort of out there, but it's it's still sort of in partnership with with a user, with a creator, right? Yeah. Um, I am not so familiar with Type and AI. We'll we'll see what's to come.
1: That's interesting. Next question.
9: Yeah.
1: Last Kyle question. Kyle Hammond hour. from Chicago, Illinois has a question. What are your thoughts on typography as it relates to three D? Have you worked with three D fonts?
9: Mm, yes. Um, so. Okay, again, duplicable, duplicable, uh, depending, applicable upon the situation, right? Um, so 3D fonts are, are, can be really wonderful. But again, it's like, what is that 3D adding to it, right? What is, the, what is the three-dimensionally adding to it? The same way, kind of in reference to that animation question, don't just do it because it's flashy and cool, right? Like there's got to be some kind of purpose. Um, and so... Um, I, I'm sort of conjuring up, uh, an image perhaps that, that Apple has used in the past where maybe the Apple TV, right? Like the big T and the big V perhaps have, have like rotated in space. Right. And the lighting is like really controlled. They're using something like cinema 4d or Maya, or whatever, um, to, to sort of make this really like monolithic impact, right? Like they're about to announce something or maybe like a big X or a big nine or whatever, right? And so the, the impact there is really important. Oh my goodness, Courtney brings up a Life of Brian uh, movie poster that he is, is showcasing on screen. Uh, great movie, by the way. Um, a really classic example too, of sort of like hand-drawn 3D type. Um, gosh uh terry terry gilliam very famous for uh his collage work right um and sort of his his sort of whole aesthetic of of monty python um right like the the reason that he's doing that 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 they're doing that, creating that like really 3D life of Brian type treatment is because it's it's supposed to be something monolithic. We're looking up at it, right? Um, which has its religious connotations as well. Okay. Um, but it feels really important. It's carved out of stone. It's really heavy, right? So it's not just that it's 3D, but there's lots of other things there happening to kind of communicate that mood. Okay. Um, so 3D type, love it. Why are you doing it? right what's the purpose what's the intent what's what's the 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 sort of emotion that you're trying to communicate um i think that's probably the mo- most important thing to to think about yeah
0: kelsey so so great like really, oh really great hour. Really, really <laughs> fun. That went really that went by really fast. It did went
9: by so fast. And we were wow. so deep.
0: There's so many questions. We might we might have to try to get you to come back. Are you willing to come back and, and, and hang out with us again?
9: Yeah, I'd like I love that. There were so many good questions. This was yeah. a lot of fun for me too. Yeah. Yeah,
0: great, great, great. Yeah. Cause it, it we 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 um. We had another, I don't know, 15 or 20 questions. That they're just waiting to jump in. So, oh so, my
9: goodness. Oh, yeah, so so I, I probably spoke too much. No, no, <laughs> I you didn't at all. on too long. <laughs> it was
0: perfect. It was perfect. And we we just need to have you come back. That's all. That's all, you know, we just, yeah. we have more questions. And so, so thank I you so it. much for for spending some time with us.
9: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was, this was really great. I love seeing all the faces here, all the super good questions. Um, so thank you so much. It was, it was great to be here. Yeah. yeah. Great to have Happy you. To
0: Thanks to the producers for all the great questions. Uh, we had hundreds of people sitting there watching, p- p- posting their questions in. We really appreciate all of your work there. We can't do the show without the questions. Um, thanks to the panelists uh, for all the great answers. That uh, We uh, we traveled 60,000 miles today. That's 97,000 kilometers and 477 million bananas for scale. Um, also, thank you to... Uh, to the incredible team on the back end. There's a small village that lights up every morning. We talk about this all the time. They're planning, they're working with people, they're prepping the speakers, they're they're figuring out the code that makes this whole thing run. Um, they're, they're developing it all. And then there's all the people that are running the show every day. And we just really appreciate your contribution. Really, really great work. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. That was so great. This is, Kelsey, we, this is like our little whisper rooms here.
9: The, 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 Oh, my gosh. We're, we're okay. just talking underneath. We're just kind of talking underneath the, the text. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah.
0: That was really don't, good. Don't forget we have a show
5: workshop tonight.
0: P.M. 6.00, oh, 3 o'clock. 3
9: o'clock.
0: Next time, kerning pairs.
9: Ooh. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. We gonna
0: do a whole per- second pairs. hour. Ker- I think we can do a whole second hour on kerning. Just kerning. Just kerning Change these typefaces for our
5: credits here. <laughs>
9: yeah. I've ooh, I I could they were so small I couldn't see them. Oh, okay. I'll have to look. I'll have to look. Uh, thanks, Kelsey. You know, this was oh. so much fun. Thank you.
5: Yeah, really great to have me. you. Thank All right, thanks. Bye.
9: Bye.